if you aren't somewhere safe and if you can't breathe, you're not going to be worried about, about going on a date. I don't know. I've known some people that might. (laughs) (laughs) Can you see that area behind me beneath the red tinted sky? That is what's left of Raccoon City. Our platoon is cut off. No survivors found. I'd rather starve to death in here. We're both gonna die. Wait, don't shoot! Down! I lost all my men because of her! All is lost. Cries of agony. Stars. Unity breeds power. Welcome to the Crimson Head Podcast, this being our 32nd episode since we started a long, long time ago in a galaxy so very far away you could still buy video games in physical form. I'm looking at you, Alan Wake 2. You're a masterpiece, but I just want to hold you and love you and caress the corners of your ca- Never mind. I forgot where I was there for a moment. I apologize. Joining me, Joe White, and no, it's not in my contract to keep mentioning that I was the actor for Chris Redfield in Resident Evil Remake. I just like to remind Capcom that they still owe me a fortune in residuals. Like that will ever happen. Tonight, we have an eclectic and multinational mix of Crimson Heads and two bonus friends who are Until Dawn experts, so they tell us. From your Crimson Head team, we have Jen Von Lee. Hello, I'm here. Jill Valenfield. Ciao, everybody. And everyone's favorite architect, George Trevor. Hi, good evening. Returning home, having been an integral member of our team before leaving for pastures new, we're reunited with BSA Arkley. Hello again. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. And wow, we have a real-life record-breaker in our mansion tonight. The Until Dawn world-record-breaking speedrunner and renowned Until Dawn content creator, we are joined by Zooks. Hi, hello. Uh, Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here with you guys. Yes, you've entered our survival horror mansion because tonight we have another special guest. We're very privileged to be joined by the writer and director for the BAFTA-winning survival horror game Until Dawn. Will Biles, welcome to the Crimson Head podcast. That's very kind of you, thank you. Okay, so that's the squad for tonight's survival horror shenanigans. Over to everyone's favorite architect, I'm going to say that every time I say his name, George Trevor, who has the first question for Will. Mr. Bowles, thank you so much for joining us. I do have the first question. What were your first formative video games and which ones, if any, shape your path as a game developer and writer when approaching games like Until Dawn and The Quarry? So I'm quite old. So um, it makes the the very first video games I played were, the, uh, were like Pong, you know, just literally that <laughs> kind of thing with a little dial and you kind of went backwards and forwards that plugged into the aerial socket to the RF aerial socket at the back of a TV. So so that was my very, very first video game. And that was amazing. I remember thinking, oh, my God, this is like, you know, I couldn't believe it. 
But then there were a whole bunch of games, arcade games, that I kind of uh, really got into. But there were things like um, Star Wars, um, lots of sort of vector graphic kind of style. But there was also uh, Dragon's Lair came out, which was a kind of a... It was impossible kind of laser game. I know. It was unbelievable. It was a proper cartoon, really well done. Uh, and I spent an absolute fortune on that. But it was really good. It was amazing. And and it was suddenly... This is changing. This changes a whole bunch of stuff. This changes entertainment massively. The idea of a passive level of entertainment like a book or a, or a film or a, or a play or it has gone there was a game i remember getting called pitfall which one of the early platformers that wow was, yeah do you remember <laughs> it dates me as well i'm probably the only other person on the podcast that that, that played pog and remembers dragons wrong there. Oh, <laughs> i didn't want to embarrass I you i'm oldest the sun <laughs> <laughs> I can remember Pitfall 2 yeah. and just being blown away with the idea that you had this tiny little stick man who could explore, but the exploration went no further than just literally going up and down some ladders and down caves. But yeah. I can actually, to the, and I looked at some footage of Pitfall 2 recently and couldn't believe, obviously, the simplicity of it. I can remember the feeling of joy and wonderment of this this technical achievement in front of me. The animation was amazing. It was the first time I'd seen, pro it was, I think it was rotoscoped animation. And it wasn't the kind of the, the sort of abstract that you had in Pac-Man. It was, it was, a, it was like, oh my God, this is like really realistic. It was, it was extraordinary. And again, every sort of, you know, year went past, it was something else would, would come into it. There was a really amazing game. It was a game called Mist. I think it came out on the Mac to start off with. <laughs> And, I loved uh, Mist. It was amazing, wasn't it? It was just mm. it was absolutely okay. beautiful. It was so stunning. It got to the stage where it looked like it was how they wanted it to look, rather than it was an approximation of what they wanted it to look. There was a game, do you remember a game called Phantasmagoria? Mm -hmm. uh, the FMV game. Yeah. Where the sprites were recorded. Yeah. Uh, and it, it had a similar thing. So there were little, you know, it was obviously sort of set in, um, in a CG world, but the level of believability really kind of upped its game in that. And I, I remember at the time the thinking, oh, how can things get more realistic than this? <laughs> Look where we are know, today. Right? <laughs> <laughs> wow, no, it's so real. And it really was. And, and so, yeah, so those, all of those were kind of like a big push forward into, into what was going on to video games. Your choices determine who will survive. Have you always gravitated towards supernatural and psychological horror rather than a gory and mean-natured torture horror? And does this allow for a deeper look into the human mind and personal relationships which are vital elements for an immersive horror? You know what? Yes, I think so. I, I really, really like the supernatural stuff and the psychological stuff. I really hate the torture porn stuff. I think that's that's awful. Having said that, Saw, the original Saw is actually a really good film. James Wan, who I think is one of the best um, mm -hmm. horror directors there is. Absolutely. Um, Have you seen Malignant? <laughs> yes. It's... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you haven't seen Malignant People, see it. It's absolutely yeah. insane. Love that movie. Anyway, sorry, carry on. Yeah, he's amazing. And I think he really has given horror a renaissance. He's, you know, he did uh, Insidious. The Conjuring, um, yeah. obviously he's got his own, you know, he produces a lot of stuff. But as a director, I think he's amazing. And uh, and Saw was was one of his early ones. And Saw is, although it's it's bloody in there, it's much more about the, the choices, certainly the first one. The franchise has gone insane. <laughs> and it really is just about, it, it's almost comedy gore now, I think. If you yeah. want to. It's like, it's like um, the Black Knight scene in <laughs> Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Is that I'm level? not quite dead. <laughs> yes. The supernatural stuff scares me 
absolutely I'm, you know it just and again i think it comes from early films that i've watched like um like the haunting that level of just really of stuff you just don't know what it is and you don't know where it's coming when i was 16 i worked on a farm in the middle of nowhere in norfolk in a place called halvergate they have a church there that's completely ruined and derelict and the tower's kind of gone and there's a story about the bell being taken by the devil and carried off down this hill to this wood and this wood is a floating wood it floats on them on marshes and if you walk in there the yeah. trees all move and float up and down oh and, i love um, that place yeah it's amazing it's so weird and in the middle of that thing there's this kind of hole where i think some children have died in the past you know oh, couple of centuries where they fall and they get caught up in the roots and stuff Ugh. and i remember i just remember walking down the lanes after being working at night certainly during harvest and all I could imagine was just this white figure screaming down the road towards me. And it just used to make me absolutely petrified. And there's yeah. no reason for it. But it was just, you know, there was something about that and the, and the feeling of that. Whereas if there'd been a monster or if there'd been something that was physical or even just sort of, you know, just nasty, you know, a killer, there's an amount of tangibility to that. So I think that the supernatural has this thing of nearly everybody at some point has felt something supernatural, whether or not it's a supernatural, oh, yeah. whether it's a ghost or something, or whether or not it's just, you know, you've, you've thought about somebody and the phone rings and it's, you know, and however coincidental and whatever the science is and however much it can be explained away, we've all had an experience mm. of some sort that's like that. And so the fact that that's a ubiquitous thing, but that no one knows what it really is or that, you know, or that there's an experience there that has so many potential interpretations, I think is full of potential and, and so that's so i definitely yeah. go for that rather than the kind of the gory stuff and the, mm -hmm. and just trying to shock people with making and also today to be honest trying to shock someone today mm -hmm. is almost impossible yeah we've got tiktok now we don't exactly <laughs> <laughs> the reason why i always gravitated and found the remake of, of the original resident evil just so emotionally immersive is although we are dealing with virology and, and the undead i kind of always my experience journey through the spencer mansion it kind of felt like a haunted mansion there isn't a supernatural element to it really but i just think those themes that you're talking about the experiences you get with a supernatural psychological horror i very much felt those playing the remake of resident evil i, I would suggest that the resident is, is supernatural because i think supernatural is not it's not that it's magic it's just we don't know what's making things happen and i think oh. um so i think as soon as you've got somebody who was dead and has now got better <laughs> at any level that's effectively supernatural whether it's a it's a virus whether it's a dna mm. however they've made that happen if you look at the very original george george romero was it Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead? That whole thing is um, is a sci-fi. It's about radiation from space that makes these things go like that. But it doesn't stop it being a supernatural horror for me. It's about bodies yeah. coming to life and stuff. So, so yes, I agree with you on that part. I think there's a, there's a thing of it is a it is a haunted thing. Is you bringing up that wood as well? I would be intrigued to know if you've ever been to a place called Clophill, which is where I grew up. It was host of the most witch trials in the UK. Oh, wow. And there's there's a tree there, the hanging tree, and oh. uh, it's in a field. It's a lush, green, lovely field, but nothing grows directly under the tree. Oh, no wow. grass, not a thing, so, for the entire creepy. perimeter of the tree. <laughs> so I grew up there, I believe, and supernatural horror is definitely scary. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's yeah, surely yeah. about the supernatural stuff, but I always uh, see a connection between Until Dawn and the Quarry about the curses. Yes. Am I wrong about that? 
No, no, you're not. There's there's definitely a whole thing about cursing, and there is a thing that's that's often with horror, which is the um, the punitive nature against a sin. Usually, that's a very mm-hmm. kind of a, a thing, and, and we try not to do that specifically because I think um, it's a little judgmental. But there's definitely about the curses. I remember talking to um, one of the writers, Alex Farnham. We were talking about curses and and what they mean, and and you know how those sorts of things transpire, and what they are. And, you know, the curses were used to be a really big thing, and were everywhere. As you mentioned before, Fatal Frame is a serial that uh, tells about the curses for yeah. Japanese lore. So I always uh, felt this kind of connection between these games. And I'm really glad that I was uh, right. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Because I always felt that Resident Evil or Dino Crisis, Parasite Eve, all these games have a different kind of horror. The monsters you face, it's always about a virus or mitochondria or uh, uh, some experiment that uh, went wrong. Uh, while for uh, Fatal Frame, Until Dawn and the Quarry, it's about the curses and uh, yeah, it's a very different stuff. Yes, there is. The curse is whether or not you interpret it as that. One of the things we're quite careful of, if we can be, more so with the quarry, not so much with Until Dawn. Until Dawn was obviously a sort of an allegorical thing, and the curse is an original curse that um, was part of the Cree, which is that if you eat somebody, that yeah, yeah. Uh, you'll become this, this ravenous Wendigo. And there's actual cases of people hunting Wendigos. One of the original Wendigo hunters was a guy called um, Jack, Jack Fiddler. Fiddler. Originally, we were going to use that name in the game instead of... Uh, oh. Of flamethrower man, but we couldn't because he still has family, and it's like, well, we can't. Ah, oh, that's interesting. But the stories are there, you know, and the stories are about people not just out hunting them, but actually catching them and then them being killed. And it's kind of really weird. And then how much of that then goes into symbology, things like the antlers and all that sort of stuff, or whether or not it's just a version of somebody. And then the other thing is you can just take a bit of license, I think. It's a story. Ultimately, all of these things are stories, and it's all it's all about how you tell them and who tells them. When we were doing the quarry, we, we had to make a whole um, setup to do with what our werewolf law is, L-O-R-E law. There's a bunch of stuff that's kind of accepted, and there's a bunch of stuff that we just made up but the thing is as long as you know what it is then you can use it so the stuff that was accepted is that it's full moon if you get bitten and you survive then you'll become a werewolf that's usually after the following month it's like you get bitten then you're okay for that night but then the following month you know you, you turn into a werewolf we did it the same night but then silver still is a thing that works and you know so it, it was just all those sorts of things it's just making that stuff up BSA Arkley, didn't the Siren series, which I know you are quite knowledgeable on, that got very close sort of encroaching on real life disasters in terms of their source material? I just made a tweet about this, actually, and then I got, I got proven wrong. <laughs> so, no, what it, what it was, it was based on this village in Japan, in Chichibu, which basically was abandoned. It's still there now, and people visit it because it inspired the video games. The developers, they went there and used that village to create their assets and stuff for the Siren series. But um, I thought it was uh, hit by a landslide, but apparently that's just the game law. Apparently it was just abandoned because the youth in the village moved out and they moved on to better careers and stuff, into like the cities and stuff and it was just left in the woods so it's still there now yeah you can actually go and see the siren village right now if you if you're in japan it's so weird there's a whole bunch of houses you can buy for like a dollar yeah <laughs> there's some really weird things there there is a curse that dwells in these mountains should any man or woman resort to cannibalism in these woods the spirit of the wendigo shall be unleashed oh crap Who designed the Wendigo? Do you recall discussions about giving them antlers, often symbolic in horror narratives? There are many antlers placed around the Washington Lodge. Perhaps this was a sign of things to come? It was Pete Samuels who came up with the idea of using the Wendigo. 
we did a lot, a lot of research into what the Wendigo is and where its origins come from. And yeah, you're right. There's certainly a lot of it that does have the antlers. Um, ultimately, the story is whether or not you go down the kind of the spiritual story or the kind of the, almost the same as the werewolf story, which is that um, it's a demon that comes inside you after you eat human flesh. And it was um, it was almost like a, a, a kind of a parable and a kind of a warning story. We wanted it to be quite physical. We wanted it to be quite corporeal. The thing about the antlers one is that that feels slightly more symbolic and slightly more folk horror rather than horror horror, rather than cryptid horror. We wanted it to be a little bit more like that. There was also, I think it might be like episode two, season one of Supernatural. There's a Wendigo story. Yeah. Um, their Wendigo was kind of more of a humanoid. I really like that sort of thing. I, I remember there was also a feeling of that thing from um, Descent as well, that, that feeling of um, hairless, skinny creatures that are there, but also slightly, not zombies, zombies the wrong word, but have an element of that undead feel. But also a big part of the Wendigo's myth is that they're hugely tall and they grow and the more they eat the more they grow which is why Hannah's bigger than the other ones because she's been in feeding the more they eat the longer their limbs get so ultimately the original design idea was mine but mine having stolen it from loads of other people uh, then Lee Robinson the art director he took it on and then he made it into what it is we wanted it to be quite arachnid in its movement as well we wanted to have a slightly spidery feel to it where it was kind of little jerks of movement rather than continuous so it would scuttle that slightly angular feel on the limbs so yeah that was kind of the origins behind the look of the Wendigo. That makes it more scary. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely that sort of spidery feel. Okay, so one topic debated within the Until Dawn community and featured in Zooks's Until Dawn Iceberg video concerns Hannah after she transforms into a Wendigo and whether she still had a remnant of her human consciousness. The writer of Resident Evil, Kanichi Arawa, who changed much of Shinji Mikami's original narrative, told us in interview how the zombies of Resident Evil did retain some memories prior to their infection. And then looking at Until Dawn, Perhaps comparably, this might be evidenced when Hannah saves Sam. So as a Wendigo, was Hannah aware of her actions and intentionally designed to have a semblance of her human mind remaining? So yeah, uh, the, the short answer is uh, yes. <laughs> um, but it's very, very fragile. There's two areas where it kind of comes in. The one at the end where she, she attacks um, the, the Wendigo that's attacking Sam. It's a slightly um, ambiguous thing there. Wendigos are attracted by movement and there was something attacking somebody, so she attacks the movement. But there is a little bit of it that's there. The biggest thing where you can see a bit of Hannah remaining is down in the underground lake. Josh either realises it's Hannah or not. And he does that by recognising the tattoo, the butterfly tattoo. If you recognise it and see that, Hannah doesn't crush his head. <laughs> and that's because it's Hannah. She still sees the fact that it's Josh. And there's a kind of a, a mutual recognition. That's the only really overt section of it. There's an ambiguous bit with Sam. And I kind of like that stuff about the way you kind of interpret it. But the reality is in the way we wrote it, there is that tiny, tiny little spark of her that's still there. There's a couple of little bits where we wanted to have just that element of something in there. The scream stuff was a very clever bunch of things that Barney Pratt, the audio director, did, where we mixed a whole bunch of different things into the screams. Do you know the story of the original Exorcist movie? They recorded an angry beehive. They took a beehive and shook it up and got the bees all pissed off and recorded that. <laughs> 
<laughs> put the sound of the angry bees just under the audio track in The Exorcist to create a feeling of tension and anxiety. They used, wow. yeah. isn't that amazing? Uh, yeah, that is amazing. We didn't use bees; we used pigs. Um, <laughs> um, pigs have got the most horrible scream ever. Yeah, really. Um, and lions and all sorts of stuff we used in that. But yeah, is that um, why Josh sees a pig? Well, if there's that, and also there's the pig head earlier on as well, which is part of his setup. There's a bit during the seance where in the background you do actually see the ghost. And that was an actual ghost as well. And, you know, you don't always have to explain it. <laughs> oh, you're not real! No, you're not! Hello! Oh! interesting this one's fallen in my lap because uh kind of dealing with horror <laughs> um people's relationship with horror often starts in early childhood it certainly did with mine what is your background with horror and was it the genre that you enjoyed from a young age did you have any influences like the hammer horror and so on I've loved horror from as as young as I can remember. I think um, my <laughs> it was probably about seven or eight. My sister often would stay up at night and watch horror films on her own and then get scared and come and wake me up and make me <laughs> watch them with her. And, that sounds uh, familiar. <laughs> and I was genuinely traumatised as a child. There was, a, <laughs> there was an extraordinary film, not film, it was a TV thing, actually. It was um, a BBC thing. Oh, I know what you're going to say. Was it, it was called Lost Hearts. Do you remember the Lost Hearts? Oh, no. Maybe not. I was going to say Ghost Watch. Did you, uh, oh, no, it wasn't did that. Did you see no, that? No, that was just way before. That was... Okay. <laughs> I know, I do remember that. Yeah, yeah, Ghost Watch. Ghost Watch was insane. But anyway, sorry, carry <laughs> yes. on. And it was yeah, yeah. presented as a real dog. They got in so much trouble. <laughs> I know. So scary. I watched it again, actually, recently, and it's not at all scary, but... But then there was a film um, that really gave me nightmares for, for months, which was a, an old black and white film called The Haunting. It's one of the scariest films they ever made. Robert Weiss was the director. The funny thing is you watch it now and it's not as scary. And the reason it's not as scary is everything's been stolen from it by almost every single uh, film. Absolutely, yeah. I saw that and that really scared me. And I remember a friend of mine and I sitting in the playground deciding that we were going to be ghost hunters in our, in our <laughs> jobs. That was our plan. <laughs> And I was obsessed. I had all these models that you could buy. There was like a Frankenstein you could get. They were kind of all the, the universal horror monsters. You got Frankenstein, the mummy, the wolfman, all these kind of little weird sets. And they were really lovely. And I just spent, I, I love that stuff. There were the sort of cards you could get that had all these amazing horror movies on. Again, black and white universal horrors that no, you didn't really see in the UK. We were pretty stuck with the Hammer House of Horror stuff, which I also loved. And, and there were some amazing ones in there. I've watched them again now and it's like, they're so oddly lit. But they were, they were all part of it. So yeah, I was obsessed with horror. Absolutely yeah. obsessed. And, and to be honest, have been pretty much ever since horror books. Yeah. yeah, books was a big thing for me. I, I was lucky enough to grow up in a house with a mother that was obsessed with, or still is, Stephen King. And I was read It yeah. when I was like eight, I think. That's oh, you're so lucky. Wow. That's a big book for an eight-year-old as well. That's, that's, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. 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 Oh, I got, I got to see all of them. I was reading Stephen King when I was in school. Yeah. Um, I love it. Stephen King, my Stephen favorite. King is, is brilliant. I'm just going through um, Mr. Mercedes again now. It's, it's um, oh, 
I love this Mercedes. He's such a good writer. But more than just a good writer, there's a level of storytelling that he does. And actually, I kind of emulate a lot about how I do, certainly for branching narrative, is how he jumps from person to person to person around Mm. a story. And and it's the view of the story. And and you get this proper 3D perspective because you're seeing it from five or six or seven points of view at the same time. uh, Yeah, I totally see that with Until Dawn, yeah. We used his kind of idea of terror, horror and gore. So it wasn't the gore is the kind of the last thing you put in. It's much more about the other stuff and uh, and how that's scary with uh, the Stephen King thing as well is that he's, he's not afraid to jump into the mind of the villain as well and I noticed that with Until Dawn you're with the spoiler alert <laughs> you're with the uh, protagonists but also you're with the villain or well, the kind of villain and you weren't afraid to go into him and like let us know what his motivations are perfectly understandable if you ask me but I'm a villain sympathizer so <laughs> There's a whole bunch of rules that we have. One of the rules we have is about truth. We will not let you play a character if that character knows something of pertinence that you don't know. Because it feels like a cheat. There's kind of a misdirection and then there's just yeah. to an audience. That's I, very I, common as well. <laughs> do you know what? Annoyingly common. If you look at Until Dawn, you don't play Josh until you know what Josh has done. Because the thing is, otherwise you'd know. It's like, well, you, anything you did, any choice you made as Josh would be, well, he wouldn't have made that choice because he knows he's the person that's you know doing it. Also, and, and also things like the truth of time and stuff. So, for instance, if a light bulb, if you walked into a room and the light just went out as you walked into a room in the game, if that happened because the door opened and it banged the light, then that's fine. If it happened because we just wanted to scare you, then that can't be an incidental light going out because that's an author doing that. That's not the game doing that that's not the, the situation doing it it's just us going oh the light's gone out um <laughs> because we don't know what time you're going to go in the room so there's no reason why that would happen it would be much easier if we just did the the thing of the light going out when you go in the room and to be honest i'm not entirely certain many people would notice that that's a problem we were quite strict on ourselves with that after doing some research about the old ps3 versions of the game it seems that before you began development on until dawn there was a game called Beyond. Was this name a placeholder for Until Dawn, or was the original idea to keep the name Beyond? Yeah, that is, that's quite good research that you've done there. <laughs> um, it was called Beyond, and it was called Beyond for quite a while. We didn't intend to change it. We were working with Sony, and they'd done Heavy Rain, so they'd be working on the interactive drama stuff. At the time, David Cage had a game that he was wanting to do, and he wanted to call it Beyond Two Souls. So it was like, oh shit, well we can't have two games called Beyond. Because then it's going to be like, well, are they linked? Especially if they're kind of like, um, you know, both interactive dramas. So Dave's game was out um, before ours. So he took that and we changed ours to Until Dawn. I mean, it's a bit of a boring answer, I'm afraid, but it was that's exactly what happened. It wasn't like, oh, this is just a placeholder. Although we do have some interesting placeholders and also some code names as well. I think the code name for the quarry was Fang. Make sure that everybody is inside the lodge for tonight. Lock the doors. No one in, no one out. Uh, Ryan? Hey! Run! We ain't playing games no more, little girl. There's something, there's something coming! One, ah! two, lost, Max, we're lost. Three! Terrified kids are bad for business. You have to cut it off! Cut it off! Cut it off!
You've mentioned Resident Evil 4 as a similar game in your video game journey, and this was where Capcom departed from many traditional game mechanics of survival horror. But were you inspired by fixed camera angle games when creating Until Dawn and Quarry? Many Resident Evil fans believe the series had to evolve away from static camera angles for the series to survive. So is Until Dawn leaving proof that the fixed camera horror still works? Well, I think to be yes. honest, I needed to tell that. <laughs> interesting question, because actually this, uh, we talk about this a lot. Very interesting, certainly for Until Dawn, because Until Dawn definitely started off as a first person horror. And then we moved to fixed camera angles. I really love the fixed camera angles. I think that's the most filmic version of something you can have. Because as a director, you can frame a scene. Whereas if you have somebody has control over their cameras, you don't know what they're seeing. You can't choreograph a scene in the same way. Also, there's something about it that, that allows you to, like I say, to choreograph a scene, but also to sort of set up things that are, might be coming down the track towards you in that kind of Stephen King kind of way. A thing we used in Until Dawn that we called Killer Cam, which is basically the, the kind of Wendigo POV thing, which is a kind of a slightly handheld hiding behind a tree look, is that if you just cut away from two people like Jessica and, and Mike are walking up to the cabin, if you just cut away from them whilst they're flirting and do this little thing in the woods where something's peering out, looking at them from a distance. You've added a layer of jeopardy into something that you can't do if you're just in the first person. You can't do that. There's a form of storytelling, and this is this is what I think it is. And this is nothing to do with cameras, it's to do with storytelling. It's called third-person omniscient storytelling. Often you can just do first-person storytelling, you can do third-person storytelling, and you can do third-person omniscient. And third-person omniscient is you're writing in a kind of um, he is or they are or whatever it is in, the, in that sort of form where it's third-person. It can be past or, or present. But the omniscient bit is that then you can cut to a thing where you're not with your third person character and you can cut to a scene where in the, in a book or in a film where around the corner somebody's sitting there sharpening a knife and then you cut back to the first person the, the person you're playing or protagonist now you as an as an audience or as a reader now have omniscience uh, about what's going on you now know there's a person around the corner with a knife but your character doesn't know and that really really adds something to to a scene so, for instance, in um, in Until Dawn, there's a scene where Hayden Panettiere is lying in the bath listening to music, and behind her is Josh dressed up as a as a serial killer. Now you see that happen as a as a player, so that's an omniscience that you can only set up if you aren't playing as her. As soon as you're playing as her, you couldn't do that scare, you couldn't do that that reveal. And again, going back to people like James Wan, if you look at James Wan's cinematography and the way that he places things, it's amazing how he does that stuff. It looks like there's nothing there, and then there's something there, and then the, the backward-recognised horror that you get from that is really, really important. So I really believe I do love that stuff. But having said that, I also love playing first-person games. My favourite game is Battlefield, which is a first-person shooter. <laughs> I'll play that and online. I'll play that for, for hours and hours and hours. I love horror games as well, and I love first-person horror games. Personally, I'm very glad that a gamer director like you said this about the fixed camera because I'm a survivor horror lover since I'm four, like Fatal Frame, the, the first Resident Evil and so on. So I was so happy when I played Until Dawn for the first time and I finally found a horror game with the fixed cameras. It was very, very amazing to me and I'm totally agree for what you said because 
because uh, I wish to mention in Until Dawn, is it about this sanatorium? As yeah. Mike, there is a fantastic scene where you uh, have the point of view of the severed hand and it's a wonderful frame because uh, I don't know how to describe. There's uh, this uh, severed hand and you can see your character as Mike is yeah. so little <laughs> and <laughs> it's really great. Until Dawn and the quarry just give me some hopes that uh, horror games are going to futures like this rather than the camera over the shoulder or the first person. I had to come to terms with Resident Evil 4 emotionally because initially that was going to have the fixed camera angles and, be, and present very much like the remake of, of the original Resident Evil. And I'd even champion a game with a very weak narrative, Resident Evil 0, because it still has those traditional fixed camera angles and a fully realised third-person perspective. Did you feel that you were using these game mechanics that other developers were kind of shying away from, maybe feeling that modern gamers wouldn't be able to engage with these game mechanics that are perhaps seen old-fashioned? I tell you what, there's a, there's a lot of practical stuff about it as well. That one of the reasons why people move away from it, certainly, and, and we've looked at it, we, we, you know, look at it again and again and again. And the reason being is that fixed camera angle, certainly in the early days, was really easy because you weren't really moving people around in a 3D space. Even the first, was it the first Resident Evil is rendered backgrounds. Those fixed camera angles, you weren't actually driving somebody. So if you reversed a camera, if you flipped to a reverse, if you're pushing forward on the joystick and someone's moving forward and the camera cuts to the opposite camera, suddenly you're still pushing forward and that now that guy is coming towards you. We have to do a thing where we have a hangover from the last thing you did. So if you don't change what you're doing with the joystick, then he'll keep coming towards you even though it's reverse. But as soon as you let go of the thing and then start again, if you push forward again, he'll turn around and walk away from you. Then you have to then pull him towards you by pulling down. Now that's not that big a deal, but it can really confuse some people. And that's just with forwards and backwards. Once you start getting into angles, it can become very, very confusing. Then you have this thing of, are you going to go character-centric on what movement is? Or are you going to go frame-centric on what movement is? So are you going to frame up, you know, whatever you have in the frame, are you going to be able to move them around that in whatever direction you push versus whatever direction the character goes? Whilst that sounds fairly simple and straightforward, it can be really, really confusing. The more complex the locomotion is, the harder it is to do fixed um, third-person cameras because you can't just do them for free. You can't just put them wherever you want to make shot look nice. You've got to put them in where that's also doable for the players without coming annoyed and throwing the, the controller down. And also other things, you know, you look at Resident Evil 7, that certainly went that first person route really because of VR. I'm fairly certain that was the original meaning behind it. So that was a very, very big, big part of horror coming into the whole thing about going down the VR route. And then it's like, actually, that still works. First person horror is not just good in games. It's also good in films. It also works in, a, in found footage stuff. I can see the arguments against it. I still really prefer it. <laughs> Until Dawn did a brilliant job bringing back the fixed camera angles. And as a community, we would often say, we need to bring this back for Resident Evil because it'd be missing since RE4. And mm. many a times people would say, oh, just it's not going to work anymore. Just look at Until Dawn. It's still possible. It can be done because of games yeah. like Until Dawn, The Quarry. Like you said, Heavy Rain even. I know it's not a yeah. horror, but they still did it. These yeah. are the games that you can look at and say, yeah, this can still work. On Heavy Rain, they had a very, very interesting locomotion mechanic, which was that they didn't drive with joysticks. They drove with a trigger. To move forward, you pulled a trigger. Then you didn't have any anxiety about what the character was doing in that, um, you know, if you reverse the camera, you still move forward by pulling the trigger. So um, that was a clever way around that. 
I think you guys did a great job with the movement changes when the camera switched because that's something that was a bit hard to tackle when speedrunning the game because, for example, in the part where you have to follow the stranger as Chris, there was a lot of camera changes and sometimes it can be a bit difficult. But overall, I think you guys did really a great job on how to manage all those type of switches. Yeah, thank you. It's a lot harder than it looks. It took a lot of trial and error to get those to work. There wasn't even a real set of rules. I mean, if you did a full 180, that often really through people. It's hard to pull off, but when you do pull it off, it looks awesome. Yes. <laughs> There's also the choice between first-person and third-person storytelling. Could you explain the difference from the writer's point of view and which one do you feel evokes a deeper emotional response? I think a lot about how this stuff works, especially for games, because games, people who are into games and understand games and, and play them and, and work on them are aware of the of the power that they have for storytelling. But I don't think in a, as a wider kind of, a, a, you know, across the board, people quite understand how powerful the storytelling in games is. And there's a reason. First person and third person, as far as camera is concerned, is a subjective thing. There's benefits to both. There's first person, there's over the shoulder third person, and then there's third person, as we've talked about with fixed camera angles, as far as cameras are concerned. As far as storytelling is concerned, first person and third person storytelling is kind of, in themselves, there's not a huge difference, weirdly, other than what I was talking about before about the third person omniscient. What there is, even in third person, when you're telling a story in video games and you have agency for that character, you're much closer to you having a direct input to that. It's much more like a first person perspective on what's going on because you're controlling them. And so what you can't get in any standard form of narrative, be it first or third, as storytelling, you can get sympathy and you can get empathy and you can get anxiety and all the sort of stuff that goes along with, with a vicarious way of living through a story. With games, it's all first person because you're literally doing it, even if it's a third person camera, even if it's a, if you, if you pick up a gun, like in Until Dawn and shoot Ashley in the face, that's you doing that. That's your guilt, your feel. You can't get that in, in any other storytelling medium. The fact that you are doing it changes everything. It puts it on a much, much higher emotional cost. I think it's really, really important that all those decisions that you're doing, all the things that you're doing, all the actions that you're taking are your actions. And then you you live, certainly with things like Until Dawn and the Quarry, then you live with the consequences of those things. As gamers and people who are in the industry, we, we all kind of are aware of that power. It's a level that a lot of people aren't quite aware of that are outside of it. My favorite character was Jess, and when she died, I was like, okay, I'm just going to restart the game. <laughs> <laughs> not something you do in a movie, is it? If someone dies, like, oh, I'm not going to, oh, okay, I'm just going to yeah. shut it off now. <laughs> yeah, that's an often overlooked element of, of storytelling in, in video games. I think it's a hugely powerful. One of the things we wanted to do with Until Dawn massively and with The Quarry is that it wasn't a solitary experience, is that you it would be sitting down with your friends or your family on a sofa and playing it. But we wanted to make it as entertaining to watch as it was to play. Yeah, it's an experience. Uncharted, I'd say, is similar as well, where yeah. the whole family can sit down and watch someone play. You're more just invested in what's going on on the screen instead of actually, oh, give me the control. I want to play. Let me do the controls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pleased this has fallen to me. I, I love this sort of question. I'm only frustrated, Will, that you can't answer this question also for the entire Resident Evil series and, and Silent Hill <laughs> as well. This is a technique that's particularly used in Silent Hill. And I know there's doors like this in the Spencer Mansion, which I'm just dying to know what, what's on the other side of those doors. I apologize in advance, Will. This is where I went uber nerd. In the Washington Lodge second floor, there are a set of doors which you can never enter. Likewise, in the first floor corridor, there are also some doors. Were these areas ever accessible or simply there to add dimension to the environment? 
when we first started looking at it, we were thinking about more exploration. And it's a funny thing with exploration, and it is certainly within survival horror, of, of what do you do with doors? If you have every single door open, do you then fill every single room with stuff you can look at and muck about with and interact with? And if you do, does it have to be relevant? Does it have to be a weapon? Does it have to be a clue? If you don't do that, then it starts to become annoying. Mm. Um, and then the other thing is, is, what about locked doors? And if you have a locked door, do you have the locked door available to be able to be tested to be locked or do you just go okay you just don't put an interactive button on the doors that are locked and ultimately we came down with let's have some stuff you can explore but let's make sure that it's at least explorable we didn't have any locked doors that were locked for the sake of just locking them we just wanted to have obviously an environment that had doors in them but we didn't want to also have for instance when sam is being stalked to the basement by josh we wanted to have enough freedom for her to walk around but not so much freedom that you lost any any form of tension and the fact that she was aiming someone Um, so it was a bit steered so obviously it's slightly cosmetic um i think we actually probably did build out the rooms to an extent behind them just because that we would often do that stuff i think probably by the time we got the code we probably culled we would have culled because we would have been made to optimize so we would have got rid of those things um, that were never open it's not quite a golden path but it comes down to a kind of a core path with some bits so for instance you could as sam go downstairs wander around you could go into the kitchen again you could go into the, the hallway beyond the kitchen you could go into the dining room none of which you needed to do you could go all the way through i think to the library or did we lock that off as well? Was it from the library? You had the spiral staircase up to where they had the um, the seance. You could do, but we were trying to get the feeling that there was something not chasing her, but there was something to be worried about and to get her down to the basement. That's an interesting balance to have to strike. We all love wandering around the Spencer Mansion and you always want to feel that that exploration, that it's worthwhile. And also at the moment playing Alan Wake 2 and you go into certain rooms and I think almost as, as gamers, we tend to maybe demand too much that there has to be something in this room to do and to interact with. If you're going to feed that urge for exploration, you, you can't have plot and narrative points in, in each room, puzzles that you have to solve in order to progress. Well, there's got to be a balance. Look at the totality of your rooms. Stand back and look at that huge graph. The same way that a, that a filmmaker would stand back and look at a, a color script of a film and see if the emotions are represented by the colors that the art director is using in a film. You look at the entire color script of a film and you can see if your emotional dynamics are working based on how the color range is, is changing. Oh, wow. And we did that as well. We did exactly the same thing. We had the entire game was done like that as well. We we went through. Well, you're an art director, so you understand how color scripts work. We would map out the emotional ambition and not the emotional ambition within the performances, but what we wanted the player to be able to be starting to feel. We didn't want this constant fear because because fear is. uh, It needs to build, doesn't it? It's not just that. It's it's also the way to um, the way to get rid of phobias is to expose you to the thing that makes you frightening a little bit at a time to start off with. If you're a arachnophobic you can people have sort of given a picture of a spider to start off with and then your body can only be frightened for a certain amount of time you know you, you can only get the elevated kind of um, adrenaline yeah. and all of that stuff can only be going for a certain point and then it just stops it just it can't keep it going so right. your fear starts to drop then you expose a little bit more so the idea of trying to keep people constantly frightened is, is impossible so allowing respite and humor that whole thing of just of aiming to get a color to get a written version of mm-hmm. what we were expecting to be able to get across for the player at the time emotionally that dynamic of being frightened out of your mind and then that's why we have safe rooms places where you can go and relax for a second yeah early development of until dawn started on playstation 3 aside from the graphical updates 
How do you feel the game improved? And was there any cut content that did not make the switch to PS4? And I wanted to add to this question. That's questions that have been asked a lot within the, the fandom of Until Dawn. Lots of people on different forums and social medias tend to believe that Jessica wasn't able to survive in her chase in the PS3 version, since the few only showcases available for that part of the game on YouTube are showing her dead every time Max gets back to her. So it would be great to know if she was actually survivable to survive at that chase. And lastly, you said in one of your interviews that one of the characters was supposed to be pregnant but the idea was dropped during development and I personally think that it was supposed to be Hannah. Are you able to share with us who was the character supposed to be uh, pregnant? <laughs> the biggie. <laughs> yeah, the big one. <laughs> The big, big difference was it went from first person to third person, and it was much more story based and obviously got much darker and much more horror than it was in the, the first one. It was, it was the same thing, and there was the same, you know, the same story and the same kind of monsters and everything there, but it was definitely a much more grown up experience for PS4. The biggest stuff that didn't make it through were things like the puzzle games. You know, they were very much about about using the move controller to manipulate things. So things like starting the um, generator in the shed at the back of the lodge that used to be a lot of kind of fiddling around with the move controller and using the pulley pull up a you know a rope to be able to make the, the motor start and all that sort of thing so all of that sort of stuff disappeared because it became it became just busy work rather than actually kind of um, exciting or anything like that there was more added than taken away originally jessica was not able to survive the chase she was the drew barrymore of the game and we did that on purpose we wanted you to really like this character and then absolutely 100 she was like nope that's gone <laughs> we stole that Scream and Scream stole it from Psycho, which is where you have a main character, very, very important to the story and, and it's a big, big part of it, that dies and there's nothing you can do about it early on. And that was on the PS3 one. Once we got into the much more the story based side of it and the, and the interactive narrative, we wanted to do this thing once we got into the narrative version of the PS4. We said, we really want to do this. Everybody lives, everybody can live, and everybody can die. And that was really important for us. That, was, that, that became a real mantra. Not only can everybody live and everyone can die, but if you do die, you stay dead unless you start the whole game again. You can't go back to a save point and just go, oh, I'm going to change my mind because we wanted the, the decisions to make you so nervous that it would become, the jeopardy would become a real thing. I've got to really, really chase after Jessica because otherwise she might die. And if you don't do it properly, she does. So that's where that came around. That very, very early version, she was much more the very, very early death of somebody that you really liked. That it was just like, oh my God, this is shocking. So that's where that changed. That is um, shocking. That's going to rock the community. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once we got the everyone can live and everyone can die idea, which we moved into the, the PS4, that was just like, oh no, this is so good. This this means that we can just push the game in any direction we like. What you, what you have to do though with this stuff is that, that you basically have to take them out of the game for a bit, which is why she was down in the mines, you know, um, and eventually can meet up with Matt or not. Depends on how he gets on. So that's how that kind of worked out. Pregnant thing, that was pre Supermassive. That was one of the very, very early ideas and one of the very early stories of Until Dawn before we had got our hands on it. So we never had anybody who was pregnant in it and never had anybody who was written as pregnant. But the original story did have some of that. The uh, London Studios yeah. builders. Yes. So it, it, it was Hannah then. <laughs> I was right. <laughs> uh, it used to be Hannah. Uh, it's a bit long to explain, but... Uh... <laughs> yes, it might have been. It might have been, yeah, we might have used Hannah. Yeah, I won't go to the story as a whole because I don't know how public that is, but there was a very specific story to do with that. Well, um, that just, really changes things. <laughs> that was fascinating. Yeah. Okay, so what is the situation with Victor Milgram? Because the events of Until Dawn would have you believe he's a character made up by Josh. However, Victor Milgram was actually a character from the past and appeared in The Impatient. Did Josh know of him? Yes. We have to be really kind of careful with the retconning. <laughs> 
there's a little bit of, of duplicity in that. We didn't specifically have it that he did, but we allowed it that he could. But the reason Victor Milgram is there is because there was a line that we had to cut from Until Dawn, which was one of the best lines, I think, in the game that um, Larry and Graham came up with, which was uh, when Josh first confronts everybody, even before he's moved his mask. He says, well, welcome my, my Milgram's Pilgrims. That was based on the, on the Milgram experiment. Do you, does everyone know what the Milgram experiment is? It was a very famous, I think, experiment in the, in the 50s. It was a psychological experiment. And ostensibly, it was trying to find out what went on in World War II. It was why, why the Nazis, an entire country, turned into absolute arseholes. <laughs> uh, by being, being Nazis. And it was like, hang on a second, they're, they're, obviously, that's not real. People, they're just people. So there was this, this real clever experiment, this guy called, I think, Stanley Milgram, I think it is. It's a social experiment for looking at what people would do with obedience. And, and what they did is they got people to uh, sign up for a psychological experiment. And that's all they knew. And the experiment was that uh, there would be a teacher and a learner. And the learner would go into one room and have a load of electrodes attached to him. And the teacher would sit in another room and ask them questions. And every time they got a question wrong, they'd just flick a switch and they'd get a little electric shock. They only actually hired the teachers. Everybody else was an actor. So all the learners were actors, all the doctors were actors, but the other, the other people didn't know that. So they would sit down and they'd know there was somebody else in the other room and they'd ask them a question. And if they got it wrong, they'd give them a little electric shock. But each shock they got wrong, they had to dial up the voltage. So they would carry on doing it, and, the, and they hear screams from next door, and they're going to get a bit worried, and the doctor goes, no, no, it's fine, just carry on. And so they keep doing it, and, they, and it would get to the stage where on the dial it was saying things like danger level, and they'd say, oh, uh, I'm a bit worried about this, and they'd go, no, just carry on, and they'd do it, and they'd hear real screams from next door. And then they'd literally do it till they believed they killed these people. And uh, I think it was it was something like 70% of all the participants got to the stage where they killed the person next door. I mean, they didn't really kill them, obviously. But they did it because they were being told that it was okay by somebody in authority. So it was just like, oh my God, that's so amazing that that's what we do. You see it every day nowadays. So we had this line where, welcome to my Milgram's Pilgrims, because Josh had set up all these scenarios for these people to do things like shoot each other or cut each other in half with a chainsaw. Or, but we couldn't do it because the legal department said we can't, the family of Milgram might get upset about that. So we had to lose that line about Milgram's ah. Pilgrims. So that's why he's Milgram. <laughs> so oh, we got it. We got sense. it in the game in the end, but nothing to do with that. <laughs> that makes a lot more sense now. Yeah. <laughs> do you remember who I am? Do you know why you're here, Who came up with the idea for the inpatient and were there any plans to continue the series? It seemed like adding a prequel might be the start of a continuation for the series. Yeah, that was an interesting one. So originally, at the time, we'd just done Until Dawn and Sony were looking at their VR, the Sony VR. And we thought, or they thought to start off with, they came to us and said, um, how do you think Until Dawn would work as a VR game? So we tried. We made it into VR and it was really good. <laughs> Except it also wasn't because the very nature of having a game that has camera cuts allows you to do a whole bunch of stuff that's not real so characters can move in a camera cut but if you look at them all the time they pop backwards and forwards so so the idea of just sticking a vr 
character didn't work directly. But we were really intrigued by the idea of telling a story with VR and seeing how that would work. And we wanted to be able to use the IP of Until Dawn. We'd already started to do it on uh, Rush of Blood. So that obviously had a large part of the, of the Until Dawn IP. And that was VR. But this was more about telling the story in, inside that. And one of the ways we thought about doing that was to do a prequel and confine it into the sanatorium. Because we already we had the sanatorium. Obviously, we had to retexture it and rebuild a lot of it because it wasn't as derelict as when we had it in the, in the game. Story, I think, might have been Pete Samuels again, uh, who came up with the original idea of, of the prequel. And then myself and others will have worked on the writing of it, I think. It was mostly uh, a chap called Nick Bowen, who was the game director on that, who really kind of did the bulk of it. It was really hard work. It was very hard work to get it done. Much harder than you'd think. Just recording people talking, we have no idea where you're going to be or where you're going to look, and you still have to be able to talk to a person without it being a cutscene, because the second you're a cutscene, you, you can't do it in VR. So having a constant camera was, uh, was quite a challenge. It's really a good prequel to Until Dawn and lots of people yeah. that are really fans of Until Dawn never really even heard of that game, so I it's a shame. I think it's a VR headset, yeah, it yeah. probably didn't, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was a good game, I really enjoyed it. With Until Dawn, we tried to stick to 24 frames a second, but with uh, with VR, you've got to have a minimum 60 mm-hmm. and closer to 100 to stop feeling sick. So, and to do that, you have to drop resolution of everything down by a significant amount. Talking about frame rates, I, I don't know if you're aware, but when Matt is in the mines, if he survived the tower fall, the lantern spins super fast because of the yeah. 60 FPS physics and everything. Oh. <laughs> it's, re- it's quite fun. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I, <laughs> we purposely did didn't want ever to go above 30. Yeah. Uh, in gameplay, if you're playing a game where you've got twitch controls and you know, you're know you shooting or you're driving or something like that, the higher the frame rate, the better. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to make it look like a film, anything above 24 starts to make it look like video, and video looks like cheap film. And as soon as you go to 60, it looks awful, I think. I get constantly barraged about it on Twitter and stuff, as people go, why can't you make a 60 frames? A, because it looks horrible, and B, <laughs> why do you want it at 60? You don't get feature films at 60. You have them at 24, because that's what they're shot at. It might be just an old man thing as well i just happen to like it i really hate 60 frames a second when you're watching something i think it looks kind of cheap video to me a first person perspective although considered by shinji mikami as the preferred mechanic for his original resident evil before it was then removed for a third person perspective was rarely used in survival horror gaming until recently with resident evil 7 and 8 However, a first-person perspective in TV and film has proved highly popular with, for example, the found footage horror, such as Blair Witch Project. What are your thoughts on this? So the found footage stuff is, yeah, it's interesting. I think first-person can make very, very scary games. It's very easy to do jump scares in in first-person because also first-person, even if you're really good you're not really good at running around and steering stuff it's like when you see somebody driving a car in a movie as soon as they put a camera in the car facing forwards it's like the field of view is nowhere near wide enough and you don't have the peripheral vision that you do in real life so it becomes a slightly fake thing and also then it becomes very very difficult to um to navigate so you have one thing that's already there which is that dr albrecht's layers of fear is the loss of autonomy you're not entirely in control of yourself i mean obviously you are but you can turn as fast as the controller will let you. So I, I do think they can really work and they're very scary. As far as the TV and film stuff is concerned, it's not as new as Blair Witch Project, but I remember Blair Witch Project coming out and they did a great campaign in Cannes at the Cannes Film Festival. They let on that this was a real found footage. That was the whole point of it. It was that this wasn't a made up film. This was literally, they had found some film and they put it together. But ultimately it was just a very, very good way to make a very, very low budget film. 
Film's hugely expensive. When I first started trying to make short films and stuff, just getting film and film cameras and, and those sorts of things together, just that side of it makes a film, even a, a cheap film, that suddenly has a huge cost to it. So a bunch of people could literally go in the woods and make a film. If there's a choice between a, a made, proper, edited narrative and a found footage thing, I'll probably go for the, the edited narrative nowadays. I'll go out of my way to see a new horror film. If it's a found footage one, I'll wait. <laughs> so, but I used to love them. And like I say, I'm par- I think Paranormal Activity is a genius film. I, I really do. Yeah. I think it's one of the scariest films around. It's because it did something different, and like Blair Witch did something different, and yeah. like Wreck, the Spanish Wreck zombie was one. awesome, yeah. yeah. If they do something different, then, then it works. But when you're yeah. just doing the same formulaic thing, which they're yeah. all doing... Then yeah, it comes a big yeah, yeah. cliche. Then yeah, no, Wreck was fantastic. It was really yeah. Cool. There's some really great horror films coming out of um, South America and like Argentina and Mexico. There's oh. an amazing film called Terrified, not no, the Terrifier. That's not my thing. <laughs> Go. No, it's not that. No, not that. Terrified. It's called. Literally one of the best films I've seen for ages. I really right. recommend watching it. It's so scary. Foreign horror films. There's something they just come out of left field and they're absolutely brilliant. Like yeah, I wanted to ask you about this one because it's so similar to Until Dawn. Oh, Frit Vilt is called uh, in yeah. Norwegian. Uh, yeah, yeah. Frit Vilt, yeah. Did you, did you watch that before you yes. made it until dawn? Oh, yes. I knew it. <laughs> I watched it and I was like, oh my God, this is until dawn. It's called Freeze. <laughs> I swear, but honestly, and, and this is the honest truth, is that wasn't before we wrote written it. We watched that well, uh, we'd written it and After. we'd already got it up in a lodge and we'd already got it in the snow and we'd already got all that stuff. So when it came out, it's like, oh my God, they've made a film about yeah. <laughs> a serial killer <laughs> at, at an old abandoned hotel in the snow. It's like, no. <laughs> so, yeah. so, yeah, it was great. And Fritville too is fantastic. It's yeah. so good as well. It's, and it carries on literally from the, the end of the first one. It's like um, Halloween 2 to Halloween. Yeah. In the hospital after. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another important theme to induce deeply immersive horror involves the hierarchy of personal needs and how, as the horror threat intensifies, the victim will quickly reassess their priorities. Can you explain this further and how it's affected your writing and direction? So yeah, literally, and, and it's a, and it's very, very specific. We, we do this on purpose. Is um, We use Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's like a little pyramid. You have, starting at the bottom, some needs. The first thing you absolutely have to have is you've just got to be physiologically, you've got to be able to survive. So you've got to be able to breathe. So as long as you can breathe, you're okay. If you take that away, that you can't breathe, that's your most important thing in your life. Nothing else matters. Then obviously, you've got to eat, you've got to be able to drink. That's the base level. If any of those are taken away at any level nothing else matters after that the second on top of that is safety somewhere to live some sort of shelter and so once you have that then you can move on to the next one which is which is love really and belonging and relationships and reproduction ultimately on that if you aren't somewhere safe and if you can't breathe you're not going to be worried about about going on a date i don't know i've known some people that might After that, you've got sort of esteem, the esteem of others and what you feel like. And then the top one, which is where most of the West is, is self-actualization. It's not about whether or not, you know, you can survive. It's not about, you know, relationships. It's not even about um, about how people see you. It's more about or how you see yourself. It's about, am I going to be an artist or am I going to be a doctor? What am I going to do with my life? And it's much more about the kind of that level of self-actualization. Certainly with, with Until Dawn and with The Quarry, we made sure that everybody was at the very, very peak of self-actualization, slightly spoiled, slightly self-obsessed. Uh, not horrible, I mean, because, you know, we're all a little bit like that, but certainly at that level of security. And then very, very quickly, we just start stripping that away. 
getting rid of self-actualization is quite easy because um, you know we can just we can do by putting you in a slightly awkward situation. The esteem stuff, just having something like poor old Zach Tinker who played um, yep. Jake. He and Emma. Emma's really horrible to him, so his self-esteem starts to go, and and he starts to feel bad. And there's, so you start to take that one away, and then you start to take away the love and belonging. And very quickly with with uh, Jacob, there's a point where you can get stuck in the water with him, and his safety's gone, and you can get right to the bottom of it, and we send you underwater, and you can just drown. We did a thing with him where we took those away within two chapters, and yeah, he uh, ends up in his underwear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's a thing about um, this sort of thing with teen horror that there's a sort of a, a sexualized element to it all. But also you've got to be really sensitive. You can't just, you can't do what you, I mean, I, I look at some films that now from even 10 years ago and you think, oh my God. So we wanted to have them kind of do the skinny dipping thing, but we couldn't go as far as going, oh, okay, let's just have them naked and wandering around naked for the rest of the game. So we just, we just wanted to make it equal. So if there's a girl doing it, there's a boy doing it. But yeah, so we, yeah, you can strip that away very, very quickly. On top of that, there's the reverse of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is Dr. Albrecht's types of fear. <laughs> the, the kind of inverted thing of that, which is that um, there's a bunch of fears. And the first fear that most people have is, uh, is called ego death, uh, which is like being embarrassed or anything where you're kind of nervous about being seen to be doing something um, that you're ashamed about. And, and, that, and that literally can be something like stage fright or something like that. that that's one of those things. Um, the second fear that he has in his types is isolation and separation and loneliness. It's a huge fear for a lot of people and, and, and definitely is, you know, is there. After that, it's the loss of autonomy. So that's either being paralyzed or flying. You know, loss of autonomy is getting into an airplane um, and not being able to fly it. That's why a lot of people are frightened of flying. Not just so much that you're two miles up in the air, but the, there's nothing you can do about it. The one after that is, is kind of mutilation, and that's where the sore stuff comes in. You're getting your hand cut off. We did a lot of that in The Quarry and in Until Dawn, you know, about lopping off your fingers if you're Mike and having to make the choice about to do that. And then the final fear is, is extinction. And extinction as opposed to death. Extinction is like, um, it's kind of the end of it all. Not necessarily just for you, it could be even kind of a wider thing than that. If you believe in ghosts and an afterlife, then death isn't that you know, necessarily that bad. But extinction of just absolutely, you just don't exist anymore is a, is a significant one. So those two systems kind of work together and we use those if we can. They're not prescribed. We don't sit there and go, right, well, we've got to do shame now, we've got to do this. But it's definitely a, it's definitely worth having those in there rather than just throwing stuff in as kind of ideas. We try to, we try to make sure that it's it has some progress. Almost like a spine to yeah. give a shape. Yeah, absolutely. There's a bunch of us that sit and talk this stuff through. I learned very, very early on. In the film industry, it's very easy to be subjective if you're a director, because that what you say goes. In the games industry, it's a much more collaborative industry, and you need to bring people along, and you need to... You can't just tell people to go, well, just do this, because it just doesn't work the same way. And so, yeah, so we have lots of kind of discussions amongst ourselves about these things. I mean, I worked with a, with a guy, the person who set up Supermassive Games uh, with his brother. There's a guy called Pete Samuels. Years ago, I mean, we used to smoke uh, and we used to stand out in the car park having cigarettes and just talk for ages and ages about this stuff. When we did Until Dawn, he said, let's use a Wendigo. No one's used a Wendigo. I always assumed that it would have been Larry that brought in the Wendigo. <laughs> no, that, that, weirdly, that was, uh, that was almost incidental that Larry had done Wendigo stuff before. So we kind of wrote the story. We wrote the whole thing of, uh, of Until Dawn early on. For us, it was early days as a studio doing something like this, this big. And we were scared of the idea of feedback about story, certainly subjective feedback and story coming from a big corporation like Sony. The people in Sony were lovely, but you never know how that's actually going to come through. So 
we thought, well, do you know what? Let's let's not write the dialogue ourselves. Let's not have that because arguing over subjective stuff on dialogue starts to become really like, well, it's just what whoever's the most important prefers, and that becomes you start to lose stuff. Whereas if we went and got somebody from effectively from Hollywood to write the dialogue, you can't argue with that. You can't say, well, that doesn't feel good enough. And it's like, well, they're good enough to make their own film, so yeah, it is good. It was almost like um, an insurance policy to make sure we didn't spend ages and ages committeeing dialogue. We got a bunch of people to do some tests for us. It wasn't just Larry and Graham. We, we had a bunch of, of um, different writers do some stuff for us. We did a little test on chapter three, which was the Jessica and Mike going up to the cabin. I knew, it. I knew, I knew that was like the beer bones because that's... <laughs> yes. yeah. we, made that, we made that chapter so many times. Yeah, it's it was unbelievable. So they did, a, they did every, all these guys did some writing tests and we got them all back and they were all really good. And then Larry and Graham Resnick, who was he was working with, this was just like hilarious and brilliant. It was just, oh my God, this is so good. And it was so good. And it was so on the nose about the kind of the tropes and the way it was written. And, it, and also the other thing is, is I'm a Brit and there's a bunch of us who are Brits. And writing colloquial teenage American dialogue, you can come a bit of a cropper. We were using phrases like pigeonhole. And I remember that we were talking to the, the writers and they said, why is there a hole for a pigeon? And they didn't understand that the pigeonhole was somewhere you left notes and things. And so that's that's kind of where they came from. And they just nailed it. They, they were so good. And Graham carried on, on on the quarry as well. It's purely coincidental then that you brought him in for this scene. You basically got the job for the Mike and Jess scene. And then you're like, oh, by the way, I, I know when to go. <laughs> yeah, it nailed the deal. Some video games are becoming almost full interactive movies with a common complaint they do not offer enough direct agency over the playable character, being too linear with an experience similar to a guided tour. What are your thoughts on this and how does your work on the query fall into this debate? So yeah, so it's a, it's a common, common uh, criticism we get is that there's no gameplay. It's a frustrating criticism. For me, the game is the story. That's what the game is. What it isn't is FIFA. <laughs> and what it isn't is Battlefield. Gameplay is a really generalised word that gets banded around as a criticism if it's not the style of game that you like. If you only like FIFA and you play a game that's not FIFA, it's going to be frustrating you're not going to like it. When you get into stuff where you're thinking, well, what we're going to try and do here is have a story that, that you feel like you're in a horror film, but that you get to guide it. And that's the game. It's like a game of chess. You're going to move a piece and that piece that you move, that's all it is, is a choice. You're not fighting with a sword. You're not aiming a gun. You're not doing any specific thing. You're literally making a choice to go from, okay, that pawn is at that square. He's now going to move to that square. And the unfolding of that game is entirely dependent on how those things are chosen. And that's what we try to do with with Until Dawn and, and with The Quarry is to make the game, the game is you making those choices. And what you get from those choices is an entirely different version of that thing. Ultimately, the end will be pretty similar. So black will win or white will win. But the story that you played through is entirely yours. And that felt like that was a really important thing to try and do. But for me, it needs a little bit of that kind of, that level of agency in the choosing of it, as opposed to an agency of, I'm actually steering a character around. I was looking at um, Phantasmagoria, and it's interesting to look at the agency of that, where it's literally just point and click, and then somebody plays out something. Mm. And ultimately, it's trial and error. It's literally, I'm pointing and clicking and pointing and clicking. And to be honest, you could say a little bit the same for um, for Alan Wake, too, is it's very much, you've got to do all the things that are there for you to do. And how entertaining it is, is how much you, you fall into that game and how good that game is at bringing you in. I do understand the criticism of not having the level of agency that you do in some games, but I'm also aware that I think it's, it's just a different 
different experience. Sometimes when you look at some of the FMV games, there's a few out, there's Erica, there's um, Late Shift, I think is one of them. It's really interesting how those approach the agency, the direct agency side of stuff. And also the other thing is, is, is branching games. You can't just branch and branch and branch and branch. It's, it literally becomes ridiculous. It's like if you branch one choice, you get two sequences from that. If you branch those two, you get four and then eight and then 16. We had 80, 87 choices that you go through in the quarry. If you've got that, it's, it ends up at something like nine, nine to the power of something mental. It's like there's 70 zeros. I saw a picture that you sent to the spill. You've got this podcast where like, you zoomed out of the narrated flowchart. Yes. And it just looks like, it literally looks like the Matrix. You can't <laughs> see anything. <laughs> it's, it's only when you zoom huge. in, you can see that it's actually a flowchart. The idea is, is you're not supposed to see that stuff. It's supposed to be an experience that you have and, and it's your own. The difficulty is obviously if you have that experience, for you it's entirely linear. You only saw one path because that's what you played. So you don't see all this, the other stuff. I'm hoping it's going to move forward. I think it is. It feels like there's room in the entertainment world, in the uh, compendium of, of what we have for <laughs> entertainment, that there's passive stuff, there's active stuff, there's lean forward, there's lean back, there's stuff in between. It might be, you know, just versions of a thing. We did this with the quarry is that you can you can literally at the beginning of the quarry you just go i just want to watch this and what i want to watch is the gory version and just that's it you don't interact with it at all and it just plays out the gory version or you can play it and you could just go actually i'm just going to set up all the parameters of my characters and i'm going to say okay so so and so is just very clumsy and so and so is indecisive and whatever it is and then again just play and that will play out i have no idea what it'll turn out like because i don't know what that choice will be Mm. but there will be choices that would have worked so so yes i think there's a there's a lot of the future is, is not just one or the other. What made you decide to use real inspirations for many of the games produced by Supermassive? Were you inspired by movies such as Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Silence of the Lambs, both inspired by the true events of Ed Gein? Many find these movies more terrifying based on the fact that they set around real events. Is this something that inspired you? Yeah, it kind of is, actually. Um, There is something about using either real events or real legends that's quite important, partly so that there's a little bit of common knowledge that either you have or you think you might have. The Edgeen stuff, I'm obsessed with serial killers. True crime, (laughs) me too. Me too. Badly. Zodiac, Um, all of it. (laughs) Edgeen is is an extraordinary man. Psycho is based on Edgeen, the film Psycho. Did you see the latest uh, documentary on him? No, I haven't. No, it's oh, really, it's really, really bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In a, in a good way or bad as a bad? Okay. Oh, it's, never, it's definitely not a good way, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I do like that stuff. And, and, and wherever we can, there's so many weird people. There's people like Albert Fish. Do you know about Albert Fish? Oh, my no. God. What an awful man. People like him. People like uh, Peter Curtin, the Dusseldorf vampire. <laughs> Crikey. Um, what a name. Peter Curtin. I like having elements of either real myth or certainly of reality. There's a bunch of things you have to do. You have to establish lore, and that can be very, very expositional, as if you've got to go, okay, so what happens with this monster is they only come out of the water when it's raining, but when it isn't raining, but it's a little bit sunny, then you can go in and get... You know, it's just like you've got to make up all these rules for a whole bunch of stuff, whereas if you've got, you know, what are rules? So, for instance, with the Wendigo, there were a bunch of rules that were already there, like you could only kill it with fire was one of the rules, that their skins... We didn't have to tell those rules. We did tell them 
and we had flamethrower guy doing it but ultimately it's out there in the real world and the same with the werewolf stuff we don't have to explain it but what we did do and this is quite useful it's like with um, Emily is we used werewolf law to kind of kid you so when she comes down and she's been bitten by the Wendigo and everyone freaks out because they're all assuming that it's like werewolves so if you got bitten you're going to turn into one but if you read the book and they do afterwards and finds out that that's not the case then you know suddenly it's uh, everything's changed but yeah using that and using law and using uh, and I think Jen was saying this it's also using the rules of horror all of that stuff is the more we know that the player knows or that we suspect that they're able to use the better it is for us to be able to either confound those expectations or to work on them the way that you're speaking well it reminds me of an early podcast that we did where we interviewed the actors from resident evil dead aim and we spoke to angus waycott who voices morpheus duval and he spent most of his time living in japan and he spoke to us at great length about how japanese ghost stories just pervade so much of everyday japanese culture and everyday life right. how, how that kind of the relationship between ghost stories and the surrounding nature the whole shinto thing as well yeah absolutely Many scenes from the film series Hammer House of Horror are presented in bright daylight and garish colours, in contrast to the usual dark and moody lighting of Dracula's castle and many traditional horror locations. There is a clear comparison between the original 1996 Resident Evil with its bright colourful palette and its 2002 remake being dark and shadowy. What are the pros and cons of each when creating an immersive horror experience? There was a huge change that happened in lighting when film went from black and white to colour. In black and white, obviously, in order to create contrast and separation, lights used really, really specifically. Uh, very often there's a backlight to separate people's kind of silhouettes out. There's a lot of, uh, there's usually a key light, obviously, and a fill light. And ultimately, you're just dealing in shades of grey with black and white. And so in order to separate people out, you need to do that. And you need to use kind of chiaroscuro and, and something that's used much more now, but certainly was in the, in the sort of the 30s and 40s with um, film noir, which is a bit more about the sort of the tenebrazy feel of, of lighting. That sort of really dark shadows and, and stuff appearing out of that. Horror for me is literally is all about that shadow, what lurks in the shadows. It's not about what jumps out necessarily, it's about what's in there that you can't see. It's why children's closets are, are the, the things that scare them a lot. There's a door with just a dark thing there and you see it in films all over the place. If you have super bright stuff, then then really what you're going for is, is the situation rather than the atmosphere, I think. And I, and I think for me, I really, really try to push massively um, with, with Until Dawn and certainly The Quarry, the level of getting that, that chiaroscuro and tenebrazy, which is really difficult inside a game engine. The way game engines light is very clever. In the early days when I started in the PS2 and stuff, the game engines lit in a thing called a forward renderer, which is kind of like a standard CG thing. So you had a fairly limited number of lights, two or three lights that you could use in real time. And then the rest was kind of baked in lighting. And what that means is that all of the environments are taken offline effectively and rendered it with really, really very, very sophisticated lights. But then the, that, that lighting is effectively kind of put into the texture of the colour and, and the thing there. So then it looks like it's really well lit, but actually it's done offline. What then happens is that a lot of the lighting then for the characters or anything that's animated inside that set, it's not lit. It's basically the, sh the shaders on those things that are animated are influenced by probes that go into that environment. And the probes will go, oh, I can see it's quite dark over here, so I won't give much light, but it's a very ambient light. So you can see things very much um, when you're walking through a, certainly early video games, you can see the things that will be animated because they look a bit different. But then, it, then there became a thing called a deferred renderer. And this was kind of just after, it wasn't on the 360, but it was a bit later on, I think. 
and a deferred renderer meant that the lighting could be done after the rendering had been done and, and all of the layers that go into making up a picture were all separated out into things called frame buffers and so there'd be a diffuse layer and if you looked at that it would just be literally like a kind of like a cartoon absolutely flat there'd be a, a z depth layer and that would give you what the depth is so you could start putting in things like fog or depth of field there'd be a, uh, a specular layer and that would only be rendering the the shiny stuff that was being hit directly by light and, and, and bouncing back and then all of those layers got put together in a kind of a sandwich and then because they were done after the thing had, had actually happened it was very very quick because they were only then working in pixels they weren't working in um, in the full depth of the game and so that became a much much um, more complex and much more sophisticated way of getting lighting done so we changed all of that we, we decided to start building our own light rigs for characters and we took off all of the the baked lights and so each character in a game would be in an environment, but then have their own separate lighting. The light would happen in a film, you know. There was a lot of argument because a lot of people were saying, well, that's not realistic. And we were like, well, it doesn't matter. This is about making it look like it's a film. Like the spotlight is on them. Yeah, literally, they carried three or four lights around with them. So wherever they were, they'd have a little bit of a backlight, even if there was no real light in the in the scene. That's what they do in films. They set up a lighting to make it look good rather than to make it look realistic. You know when it looks realistic is when it looks like EastEnders. We were trying to make it look like a painting, like a like a Caravaggio rather than a snapshot on an iPhone. So so that, that sort of thing about cheating in that way to try and make it look more filmic was a really, really... And not just a conscious effort it was a it was a conscious effort against a lot of um, opposition people a lot of people were saying that this will never work and people will just think it looks weird you can't have the moonlight on someone's back if the moon's are, are supposed to be in front of them and we were like yeah of course you can was this something you implemented on the ps3 build no well we did it on the ps4 and the reason being is that the ps3 was a first person game with a with a flashlight so the ps3 game that we started with was was literally was a was a first person horror but it was a move control game. Do you remember the move controller for the PS3? I know that uh, later in the development, they decided to carry the Until Dawn project to PS4 and they yeah. use the DualShock 4 instead of the move, the PS3 that's, move. That's exactly uh, right, correct? yeah. Yep, completely right. The whole thing was quite funny. So we, so the first one was a, was the this move control thing, and it was all first person except for the odd cutscene. But we had very few cutscenes because we wanted to try and keep it. Wanted it a bit like Half Life. Half Life had this thing which was first person. Half Life has no cutscenes. It has scenes that you're in as a, and you witness them from the first person perspective. It never came out to a third person kind of cutscene systems. So we were looking at that as a, as a thing, and we got that. I think we got it to Alpha, and then yeah. we went over to Gamescom and showed it off and it went down really well it went down super well and but we got a lot of questions saying well i don't have a, a a move control but i really want to play this can you is it is it exclusive and it was exclusive but literally just at the same time as that was going on the, the ps4 was coming out soon we were chatting with sony and the thing is also we showed them what the game looked like from third person and it looked amazing in a way that no one was ever going to see because it was always first person and so there was this decision was let's widen the audience we'll still keep the torch movement in there um and you're right the dual shock was was how that happened before the dual shock came out we had to <laughs> we had to make a version that was the move control. We literally um, had elastic bands and attached it to the old PS3 controller uh, so that we could test it out and see if, see if it worked because the, the DualShock hadn't been released then. So um, so that's how we were testing that. Because, you know, even with the DualShock, even when you're in third person, you can move the flashlight around in, in Until Dawn and see what you're looking at just by moving it. When so, you did transfer from PS3 to PS4 with the game, did you keep any any assets like gameplay or mechanics or anything, or did you just start completely fresh? 
No, we, so we kept the story was pretty much the same. What we did do is we, we took out a bunch of the kind of very gamey puzzles that we had, which were move control specific. Because it had become a little less that sort of game and it become more like the kind of heavy rain thing. Heavy rain had come out and done well. There was definitely an appetite from Sony to try and get something similar out there that was, a, you know, an, an interactive drama rather than just a kind of a game that was third person. Also, you know, we were very keen to pursue the what, what I really, really love, which were the early Resi games. There was a really lovely game. I'm sure you guys know about it. Um, the Crimson Butterfly games, the uh, the Fatal Frame, the, yeah. with the with the fixed camera oh, angles. And I love. Uh, <laughs> I know, super scary as well. I mean, just oh my god, those were so scary. It is. Um, so we wanted to do much more of that as well and get it really cinematic. So we, we kept pretty much most of the story. We had to reshoot all the actors. We'd done all the actors because we weren't really getting close up to them. We'd done all the actors. We shot it all in New York and the animation was traditional-ish animation, gamey, so it wasn't bad. All the models had been sculpted of the actors, but for the PS4, we, we kept some of the actors. We couldn't keep all of them, and we got some more new ones. We got Rami Malek in, and we got Hayden Panettiere and, and, and others, and we scanned them. We used um, a company called Trilateral. They had this new system. Because of my background in um, CG, I'd worked with animation. In fact, I think I'm in an encyclopedia about how I was developing facial animation using blend shape animation back in 2000 or something. And that hadn't really been used in games. But this company, Trilateral, was scanning actors, properly scanning them and conforming them, and then using blend shapes for animation, which meant that the shapes that they were forming were literally the shapes that the actors had made. So it became a much, much closer kind of uh, verisimilitude of their performance rather than it just being a sort of an animation version of what that was. Because it was cinematic, it kind of grew. There was a different ending. There was a very different ending. There was a big truck driver oh, attack the, thing. The, the very, very ending used to be that all the people who were had survived ended up in the ski lift going back down the mountain and then it jams halfway down and then they're stuck there and then somebody goes, I'm really hungry. <laughs> that was the end of it. <laughs> That was the original end. But yeah, so um, a lot of it's the same, but a lot of it, a lot of it changed and it became much more about, about it being more filmic and more, more like uh, an interactive uh, drama than it was about a, a puzzle game. It went up a notch in, um, in the age rating, I think it was, yeah, I think the original one was more like a 12 and then it, then it definitely went up. Just very quickly, I was just going back to the original question, thinking about the Hammer House horror series. It was very bright and very garish, the colours. What happened when film went to colour was that and actually, there's a fairly famous story about Alfred Hitchcock, and he made a film called The Torn Curtain, and that was one of his first colour films. And for the first time, he said, well, we don't need to separate people out now. We don't need all this backlighting and clever lighting that was being done on black and white. We could just flat light everything because the colour separates it out. And if you watch it, it's really obvious. It's like, oh my God, that's, that's, that's unlike anything you'd see nowadays. It's very bright and flat. And that was the way things were lit when colour came in. If you look at most films in the 70s, that's what they looked like. They were all just brightly lit because the whole thing about the separation out of, of light and dark had disappeared as, as being an important part of, of filmmaking because it just wasn't needed because the colour was doing it. And then really it was sort of towards the end of the 70s when you get people like Ridley Scott and, and those guys who really were starting to look at stuff in a much more kind of traditional way of photography where you get things like, um, there was a film called The Duelists that was Ridley Scott's kind of first major feature, which is a staggeringly beautiful film uh, and back to that kind of thing. And, and obviously again, Alien, if you look at Alien, back to real chiaroscuro and darkness and suddenly after the 70s early 80s um, films started going much much more back to this kind of um, this horror lighting that was being much darker and much much more about the shadows and much more about what you're not seeing as what you are seeing 
uh, and what you can expose with light. There's a famous scene in, in Alien where, I can't remember which the character's name is, the captain is down in the, in the kind of the, the drain section. It's entirely dark and he uses the flamethrower to lighten something up behind him and that's where you see the alien. And it's a genius shot. I mean, it's, it's super shocking, but it was great. I love a well-lit horror. <laughs> I feel like if you can pull off horror in the light, then, you know, you're pretty much mastering <laughs> There was that, that movie recently, It Follows, where some yeah. of the most horrifying scenes were broad daylight outside, yeah. and they somehow managed to introduce that atmosphere just yeah. of, oh my God, I, we need to leave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Texas Chainsaw Massacre also. Yeah. Yes. yeah, and the quarry has quite a lot of stuff in the daylight. There's an intimidating atmosphere going on at the beginning of the quarry. We wanted to sort of set it in this, this slightly kind of idyllic, slightly golden hour. What is lurking in that shadow? <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> and long shadows. I think long shadows are great as well. Long shadows have a, have this ominous feel about it because you know night's coming and there's a, there's something about it. I think that's uh, that's kind of still cozy and warm, but it's like okay, yeah, but not for long. Something's happening. <laughs> I love that feeling. I think you also get that contrast of light with the snow as well, which is what until dawn brings. Mm, the moon bouncing yeah. off the snow a lot. That's yeah. nice. That snow is so funny. What it does to light at night is is very, very odd because you get a level of ambience bouncing off regardless of how dark stuff is. There's just yeah. this sort of odd level of ambience that really kind of gives you something. Zook and Jill, I just wondered, were you guys familiar with the Hammer House of Horror series at all? Not at all. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I discovered it. I was about four or five. I managed to find my father's hidden stash of VHSs. <laughs> now, this could have gone one or two ways, I imagine. Th I suppose, thankfully, I don't know what sort of website Crimson Head would have been if it had been the other thing, but th these were horror films that he was hiding. And yeah, it was just a whole series of, of Hammer House. Do you know what? There's an interesting just thing about, about Hammer is that um, they've been going for donkey's years. They've been really, really, I mean, they kind of started horror, really, I guess, in the 50s. And, the, and there was a film called The Quake mass experiment i think was their first one i think but that was black and white oh wow that's kind of where that's that stuff started and then i think they um they pushed on some of the frankensteins and the draculas and the you know and those sorts yeah. of things and 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 it, you know they had these kind of main two characters it was was peter cushing and what was his name christopher lee yes and those two were kind of like in almost every single one of them christopher lee was um, dracula and he was frankenstein's monster uh, peter cushing was usually sort of the van helsing's type character or the, the Dr. Frankenstein. They did a stack of those things. But they were fantastic actors because, you know, people might kind of associate these films maybe with B-movie type actors. But these were fantastic actors that we had. Yeah, they were great. Both Until Dawn and The Quarry take place in an environment not usually accustomed to horror with bright snowy locations, although there are exceptions. People are going to be shouting at me with The Shining and, of course, the Finland-inspired locations of, of Alan Wake. But in terms of The Quarry and Until Dawn, of course, what was the artistic reasoning behind this choice of environment, the snowy mountainous location, and how did it affect lighting and mood control? The snowy thing was it was kind of legacy actually. They had been making the quarry before various different versions of it, um, and it was set up in a in a ski lodge. And it was like, okay, you know what? That's great. I like that. That sounds that sounds fun. I love the thing. That's another movie that I do think is an amazing film. Oh yeah. That cold thing really feels like it's an important um, element to the story. We wanted it to be a threat as well. That it wasn't just the monsters and stuff. That the actual environment was a threat. There's a bit where Emily and Matt are walking up through and a, and a kind of a blizzard star and all that, that stuff. But we wanted that to be an important kind of um, area of, of the story. 
I think Snow is a great horror environment. With the quarry, the woods and the, and the summer camp was literally back to kind of like Friday the 13th. We've gone very, very archetypal in Until Dawn, but we wanted to go even more with um, with the quarry, which was uh, the archetypal horror environment is a summer camp. That's where 80s horror kind of really came into its own. There was a film called Sleepaway Camp. There was um, there, there was all sorts of um, films where there was that, that sort of teenagers out in a, in a bucolic situation doing this sort of stuff um, you know the hills have eyes and so that's why that kind of went down that route the woods and stuff is also a very very useful thing is um, trees are very good to hide stuff in it's quite spooky going through the woods at night the shadows and, yeah. and lighting and stuff so yeah Okay, and did it did it pose any particular challenges in terms of the horror? I mean, we mentioned before, Jen Von Lee said, you know, if you can do horror in the daytime, you've done your job. I'm always beating Resident Evil 5 with a stick for taking place. Uh, <laughs> for me personally, I much prefer my horror in, in the shadows, in, in the dark. Did you find any challenges particularly with that? Again, once we kind of worked out what our lighting paradigm was going to be, which is which was not using the whole IBL bounce light system, working on a shader, which meant we could get full shadowed occlusion on the characters. And if you look, we we are very very contrasty as well. We we made sure that it's it's there's a lot of shadow in there. That usually goes against the grain. People don't like not being able to see stuff in games because it's a game, and you kind of need to have the power. But for us, that was absolutely vital that we had lots of shadow. First off, I gotta say, I am super excited to welcome all my pals back to the annual Blackwood Winter Getaway. Let's make this one trip we will never forget. When experiencing a horror narrative, it can be presented as a lean-forward experience, such as a video game, or as a lean-back experience, such as TV and film. With TV and film, you get a more passive experience, whereas with gaming, you feel more engaged, perhaps, as you, the player, have greater agency. Do you feel this is always the case? What happens when these lines are blurred? For example, with Black Mirror episode Bandersnatch. And in Alan Wake 2, did the Mr. Door TV show and all the live action footage break or add to the immersion? The whole thing about the lean forward and lean back um, experience of, of consuming entertainment is, is interesting. The way we ration our own entertainment is, is relatively interesting as well. I think there's a you can go from spending a few minutes or a few hours on something like TikTok and your attention span will be two or three seconds. And if something hasn't grabbed you in two or three seconds, then you'll flick onto the next, um, you know, your scroll. If you're going to watch a film nowadays, it used to be different. I think it used to be different um, when there was sort of just standard network TV where people used to put on if you had two or three channels people used to put on the tv in the evening and they would watch through a whole bunch of what was on now people are much more specific about what they do with their with their time and what they watch and the people will watch a film for an hour and a half and they'll allocate an hour and a half for that and then they'll either carry on scrolling or they'll or they'll two screen it and they'll be watching and if, it, if it's really engaging they'll they'll get into it at a weekend they'll binge a weekend's viewing of, a, of a, an entire series so they'll allocate a few you know eight ten hours to that level of entertainment and then of course games can go a, an awful lot longer than that you know i mean people have been playing Baldur's gate sort of 100 hours in and stuff like that so the allocation that you a lot to the level of entertainment that you want to have is a big part of that i think so that thing of how much it's lean forward and lean back is a matter of how you're feeling at the time if you want to allocate an hour and a half and you want to relax often a film is the exact right thing for that because it is an, it's an immersive experience and you get a narrative transport and that's and that's a big part of it is the narrative transport if you're watching a film just because you need to know the story it's pointless 
once you're carried away by the story, you get yourself into a different world, either by reading a book or watching a film or whatever it is. That's why you watch them. It's not just to, so you've been informed of a story. It's the transport. It's, the, it's literally it, which is really similar, actually. That now, now to transport. If, if you watch a really good film, you won't think about the time. You won't think about being hungry. You won't think about anything. You're just engaged in that. And if you're playing a video game and you get into the flow of a video game and it's just the right amount of difficulty and it's just the right amount of challenge and it's not too frustrating, you also end up in this place where you're not really thinking about time or anything like that and you can spend hours suddenly doing that. There's an interesting area about how much involvement you have. If you're constantly having to tap a button just to be able to move the story forward, that can also be disengaging. That can just break the narrative. That can break the, the suspension of disbelief. If every second something comes up, you've got to press a button, unless it's, you know, as a choice. If you're constantly being given choices, the story can disappear. So there's a fine line, I think, between what's really engaging and what's just annoying <laughs> about the level of agency that you have with a player. Black Mirror was great because it was a, it was one of the first times that mainstream TV had done something where it was, it was a full interactive horror, albeit it was a very specific style. It was very much a spurred branching story so the story was that you had a single person and then if it went down you made one choice wrong suddenly you died and then you either had to go back and start again or, or start from where you left off so it wasn't a full branching narrative as that but it was interactive and it was interactive without having a joystick it was interactive just with a, with a remote control so that was really good I really like the Alan Wake 2 Mr. Door stuff I love it I think there's not enough tangential things going on in, in games that's think, interesting um, yeah I think you can overly focus focus on one area. I mean, Alan Wake 2 is very, very interesting in a whole bunch of ways. A, because it's two entirely separate stories that are kind of woven together. You know, all the sort of stuff that goes with it is, and the mixture of live action and the and game graphics. And there's an awful lot of experimental innovation in that that either works or it doesn't work depending on whether you like it or not. I personally think it's really good. I think it's good to have something that isn't entirely set in, in the template of other things, you know, that's, that's gone before. Do you know Clock Tower? Yeah. Oh, great. Um, Clock Tower, it was raised on uh, 1995 on the SNES, Super Nintendo. This game influenced in some kind until down? I mean, a bit because I've seen it. So obviously everything that you see or play goes into it. Actually, weirdly, there was a lot of stuff in that that we just went, we want to stay away from that. There was a lot of the girl crawling in front of you with her skirt. And it, yeah, and it was like, okay, this seems a little bit um, obvious. Uh -huh. a bit kind of, <laughs> do, you, do you remember? It was like, oh, okay. Um, there was also a thing that they did, which was kind of... I remember it really annoyed me. She would get disorientated if she got, was it overly frightened or something? Yes, and suddenly yeah. you couldn't run fast enough and you couldn't. And I thought that was really disempowering. And that really annoyed me because it was like, well, I'm not, I'm fine. And, you know, you, you adding a handicap onto me just feels frustrating. And there's a big thing in video games about empowerment and upgrades and all the sort of stuff that as you go through, you get better and better and better. And sometimes you, you know, you sometimes you lose all your weapons and all that's fine. But the but when you got, I mean, that guy kind coming after you you're trying to run forward and you're staggering around and it's just like oh this just is annoying so whilst i did i found it scary and, I, and certainly the, the, the subsequent ones i thought they were very good there was a lot of stuff that we we avoided <laughs> because of them when you look at the sensibilities of the 90s compared to now that it's a different world I think yeah. a key word in all this is experimental yes. with the interactive stuff and with the clock tower and that system you mentioned. And the, I know the thing had a similar, the video yes. game had a similar system with the fear of thing. But all yes. this stuff is experimental and it's like yeah. Silent Hill Ascension. Now that's like an experimental game and it's not for everyone. I know a lot of people dislike yeah, it. Yeah, I've heard it yeah. called many other words. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but at least like they try and yes. we're going to get like now sub-genres of this interactive narrative games. Yeah, I agree. 
was the Adirondack? Is that, have I pronounced that correctly? Adirondack, yeah. Thank you, Joe. We have an official American with us. Thanks, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) Was the Adirondack mountains, (laughs) uh, were they used as an inspiration when creating Hackett's Quarry? And secondly, the teenagers in Until Dawn have American accents, not Canadian. The Washington Lodge has many posters and photos of New York City. Were the characters of Until Dawn from New York? Yeah, so it's really funny when we start um, making up places. Um, you've got to be a little bit careful that you don't make a real place. People get upset if you suddenly, you know, um, uh, yes. put, put where they live and, and suddenly there's a monster charging around. And, and so, so we've got to be a little bit careful about that. So they're always made up, but they're always trying to, if we can, we try to base them on the real sort of geography of a place. When we were looking at um, the quarry, all around uh, the States, everywhere you go has a slightly different sort of feel. So if you go down south, you're going to get mosquitoes and sweaty and stuff like that. Where, And if you go further north, you get into the snows and to the mountains and the rain. And, and west, and anyway, all over the place, you kind of get lots of different character of wherever it is. We were looking around, I think I think the first place we were going to do um, the quarry was Wisconsin for some reason. I can't remember why. But then we, we moved east and we moved to upstate New York, partly because of the lakes up there and partly because there was an old, I think at the time, not now, an abandoned summer camp. Do you know when you said um, you moved to the east for the lakes, is that like uh, Friday the 13th kind of crystal lake? A little bit, yeah. I mean, one of the things we did with um, with the quarry, which was, we did it with with Until Dawn, which was basically to go and, and have a look at all the really, really big kind of teen horror tropes and then really kind of go, okay, let's work on that. And the thing about um, Crystal Lake and Friday the 13th was that's, that's like, that's such a seminal teen horror and it's a summer camp. And that was very much like, okay, let's go there. Let's do that. Let's um, get it as close to that sort of vibe as possible without entirely stealing it. But to, just to make sure that it just, it sits 100% in that kind of feel of teen horror, you know, stereotype, that feel. So yes, it was a little bit of that with the lakes and stuff. But yeah, mostly it was just about, you know, right amount of woodland without too much hill. Enough hill that there was hill, enough that there could be a quarry, enough that there could be an actual quarry. We looked into the whole thing about quartzite mining and, and how that went on and, and how you could have a relatively wealthy mine that then suddenly stopped working once the quartzite had run out. And uh, so you'd have a kind of an old big house that was obviously from some degree of affluence that had then decayed and got into, not kind of ruined, but certainly kind of decrepit. And then for that family to be able to go, okay, from that, well, let's build up a summer camp because that's what um, you know we can do around where we've now got what was quarry is now a kind of a swimming area and stuff it was all trying to pick up enough of a backstory there to make it work and ultimately it's almost arbitrary wherever you pick but when you do pick it then you make it work so that was that was definitely um, there with with a quarry with the american accents in until dawn the washington lodge was um i think we did have the washingtons coming from new york but the rest of the characters were from various places around america but there was definitely a new york thing we shot and had the original recording for until dawn we shot all of that in New York. We didn't do it in LA for the PS3 version. So all of that was done up there. So I think that's probably where the original idea came from. Then when we, we obviously we moved um, and we shot the PS4 version uh, in LA. And we kind of wanted to have this kind of affluent Washington people who came up there for the summer holidays. There was a definite thing about um, about the Blackwood Mountains. We, we did on Google Earth start hunting around and we found 
a place in British Columbia. We found a spa where people, I think it was a radium spa, and that was again part of the whole idea of this sacred mountain. It was a sacred mountain where they had this spa. So we would pick and choose certain bits from around the place that would make it work. You could justify, not the reality of it, but you could go, okay, oh yeah, well that's that's real and that's real. I mean, it doesn't have to all be in the exact same place. And of course, Blackwood Pines was based on Algernon Blackwood, who wrote the book The Wendigo. That's, um, that's where that came from. When you said that the Washingtons were from New York and everybody else was from around America, how would they know each other? Would that be like a private boarding school? We decided early drafts, they were a little bit younger, and then we suddenly realised that we couldn't have anybody drinking or anything like that, so we had to kind of get to a certain age. So our feeling was is that they were all kind of college together. Because in the press kit, there's like a picture of like a school in there, but you never, you never see or hear anything about that in the actual game. Yeah, there's a little bit about um, the class president, uh, Mike, because yeah. um, his his whole thing was that he was kind of this, you know, the, the class president. So he never goes on with that. And there's a little bit of a conversation between Emily and Jessica about the grades and their point averages and stuff. So there's a bit of bickering in there about that. So um, maybe it was school and not college. That's really cool, Prescott. I ended up paying like over £100 for it. (laughs) That's my pride and joy. No, 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 what we do with all of our stuff if we can is there's a really good um, way that we don't use it to to write stories but there's a thing called um, Save the Cat Blake Snyder's Save the Cat and it's a really useful way of checking to see if stories are working or not and he has a I think I can't remember how many it is but there's there's a whole bunch of stories and one of the themes or one of the sort of the, the templates is called Monster in the House and one of the prerequisites for Monster in the House is you're trapped there with this monster in the house. And, and that's super important. So Alien does it. Um, most most horror things give you this thing of you're trapped there. And it might not be physically trapped. You might be trapped because somebody that you can't abandon is doing this. That level of being trapped up in a snowy mountain and unable to get out, it was a vital part of, uh, was of Until Dawn. Same, same with the quarry. You're trapped there till the morning. It's also a major theme in the thing. Yes, honestly, you can go through most horror films and you'll suddenly go, oh yeah, they're stuck. (laughs) Um, And again, maybe not literally, but pretty much, yeah. Yeah, finding more and more creative ways of doing that as well. There's a a movie out called Relic, which is about a woman caring for her mother who has Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, which is something my grandmother passed away from. And it's a terrifying disease. And that is the enemy and she's stuck with it in this house. She's, She's a terrifying movie. Yeah. Really gets to you that one. Yeah. Creative though. Is it a backstory for the curse in the quarry and where it originated from? How did Silas become infected? Uh, there is a little bit of a one. Um, <laughs> the funny thing was, we started writing it and we go, okay, right, well, there has to be the kind of the original werewolf to start the whole thing off. And then every time we did that, we go, yeah, but how did that get to be a werewolf? And it starts to become this thing of, well, you can't, you just can't stop. You just keep going back and back and back and back. So, so what we decided to do with Silas was to get him to be this kind of weird outlier of a werewolf. So, so that obviously he's got the curse, but it isn't necessary that he got the curse from being bitten by a werewolf and more that he got a curse by being brought up by wolves. We had a thing where he had been found during the harem scarum kind of tours and they'd gone through Eastern Europe. We didn't put any of this into the actual kind of um, the story, but that that was how we justified the fact that you had this, this one person who had this curse, but the curse wasn't by another werewolf 
because otherwise you're just going to have to find that werewolf and then it suddenly becomes another another quest that was the backstory there we didn't want to go into too much detail on it because you know it starts to become exposition and at some points you just don't need it yeah i can understand it's kind of like what came first the chicken or the egg <laughs> you just... yeah no literally every single time you have another werewolf above them then you have to go into that story until you find the proto werewolf Mm, that's what we kind of did with Silas, was to go, let's not make him a standard run-of-the-mill werewolf, a ten a penny. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's get a kind of a, a, a unique thing for him. Kind of like the Crimson Head Elder. Um... <laughs> right, yeah. So, early gameplay from August 2015 showed that Chris was once part of the group that plays the prank. Uh, why was Chris taken out of the prank with such little time before the game's release? So we wanted uh, a little bit of um, nuance, I think, in that. There was the whole scene in the kitchen, and we wanted to have the fact that Josh wasn't drunk on his own. Um, it made more sense to have them to be friends. And we carried that through into the actual thing. There was even the, kind of the, the shipping between Chris and, and Josh. That became a thing that we hadn't written in. But we did want to have them to have quite a close relationship. If you had everybody being part of this group, it, it makes them a really unpleasant group. Whereas if you have a few of them going along with it, it becomes slightly more believable, we thought. So that was the, that was the thing about Chris not being part of it. It wasn't a tiny bit before. It was, it was a while before we did it. So regarding that, I have another question. Uh, was Sam also meant to be like from the start saying like, you guys are jerks, why are you doing that? Or was it also added with Chris or...? No, so we definitely wanted to have, there were a bunch of things. We wanted to have a final girl, mm -hmm. which was a, you know, is a trope. Yeah. We wanted to have a character. It's, it's really odd. It's hard to have a lot of characters that everybody's unpleasant because you start to have very difficult time finding empathy with people yeah. who you just go, well, I just don't like them. And we knew that was going to happen to an extent. It was such a dick move for them to do that anyway. It was like, why would you do that? That seems such a mean thing to do. But anyway, so, you know, we wanted that. Sam, we did want to have, and we had to have, just by the nature of, of what we did, we had to have some plot armour to be able to get at least her and Mike to the last scene mm -hmm. without the chance of them dying. Even though with Mike, it looks like he does have a bit more up in the sanatorium. There was a really important thing that we had that plot armour. It would be very unfair, we thought, to have that plot armour for somebody who, and inverted commas, deserved to die. Um, <laughs> so that was kind of how that worked. It's obviously a little disingenuous, is that you can't, you know, if, if literally everybody can die in every single chapter, then you potentially have a very short game. And we wanted to have a thing where the repercussions of making a choice that ended up in a death were really significant. So that's why, that's how that happened. Um, I think in reality, you would end up with people who are slightly more defensive. If you went to somebody's house and there were a couple of people there and you decided to be that mean to one of them, that would just be such an odd thing that, that everybody was that mean at their own house. Mm -hmm. You know, you've yeah. never so, been to my house on Thanksgiving. So. <laughs> <laughs> it can get pretty desperate. That's got to be a difficult thing to write, that type of story, where every action has a consequence to be followed up on. How do you get into that mindset of, uh, I mean, it's almost like writing procedural TV, procedural cop shows, where the crimes are so convoluted. The original story is I just wrote a story. That's not entirely true. So the original, original story, which came from um, Stony London, which was a group of teenagers up in a um, lodge up in the mountains. Mm -hmm. um, and one of them was a killer. It was kind of more like Scream. One of them was a masked killer, effectively, but you didn't know which one it was. The thing about that we found was that it felt like you were deliberately hiding stuff instead of finding stuff out. Uh -huh. And so we changed it. We wanted to get a monster in there. We wanted to get it to be a bit more of a horror rather than just a straight slasher. But we wanted it to start off like a slasher and then become a monster. I mean, the Wendigo thing doesn't really become a big part of the story until about halfway through. That whole thing, we wanted to be able to do a twist in it. 
once we've written the story, then we start going, okay, at every single point along the way, what are the things that could happen? And once you get that, then we start using a huge, huge kind of, um, like a mind mapping thing where you have each little section of a scene is put into a box and then branches from that scene are kind of pulled off and, the, and you look, wow. okay, that goes there and that goes there. And it becomes a massive, massive thing. It, it, it's, it's structurally, it's immense. Um, it looks, love, it looks like the Matrix. <laughs> it's, it's huge. I would love to see a, a graphic of that. I mean, it, it would be mind-boggling. Regarding the plot twist, when you decided to do that, did you feel like you were taking a risk, like you might alienate some people? Everybody uh, loved it, but was you concerned to that people might not like it? Some people didn't like it. Some people got really annoyed. Um, oh, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you're 100% worried about annoying some people, then you just won't do anything. So yeah. for a game, if it had just been a single story, I think it would have ultimately been a, a little bit boring. For something that did suddenly switch around, there's something quite nice about that feel, I think. One of my favourite films is, <laughs> bizarrely, Dust Till Dawn. That's a film that's, oh my God, where did that come from? Once, once you get into the vampire section of that, it's a completely different thing. So, so yeah, and I like like that. I think that's quite fun, switching things around. Was there ever discussions of crossing over Until Dawn, The Quarry and Dark Pictures into one cohesive world, such as in the Bizarre Yet Bonafide podcast, they refer to the Wendigo. Was this an intentional reference to Until Dawn? So yeah, so it's weird. Until Dawn started that whole thing off. The Quarry, we wanted the Quarry to be in the same universe that Until Dawn was in, but not part of it. By that, I mean, it's a world where there are Wendigos and it's a world where there are werewolves. Again, I'm going to go back and use the thing about supernatural. It's just that there's a world where they, these things exist. And so there's definitely that. The Dark Pictures has another version of that world in itself, actually, which if you look at that, they very cleverly have links across to other parts of the Dark Pictures. Mm -hmm. So the Dark Pictures is genuinely a cohesive world but because it's all part of the same thing whereas Until Dawn and The Quarry were obviously separate things with separate publishers so we couldn't do direct links between them in the way that we wanted to we definitely had nods to it because I think fans like that but we couldn't do a real kind of full direct well okay you know there's the Washingtons and the, or whatever yeah. and it's not even a legal thing I'm sure if we asked them they might go oh yeah but it's more it's more kind of just oh you know what it's just a respectful thing if you need to you could I suppose but um, we, did, we just thought no, let's, let's leave it as nods rather than direct kind of um, you know, connections. Yeah, I really like the nod uh, when Ryan was speaking about a teen going in a ski lodge and being stuck and <laughs> yes. that, that whole, uh, yeah, it was great. And see, that sort of thing's fine because it's generic enough to kind of go, oh yeah, but anybody who knows, knows. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so we've now got just enough time for a couple of call-ins. Thank you very much for submitting those. We've got a great question from one of our followers, Silver Serpent. Thank you, as always, for supporting the podcast. But first, a question. A huge fan of your work, Will. Over to you, Stan Puzdriak. Hi, I'm a huge fan of Until Dawn and The Quarry. I really wanted to express how much I respect what Will Biles has accomplished and I'm excited about his new company. I'd like to know more about his plans for Dialamp for Monkey and how anyone could become a part of their team. Thank you for your answer. Dialamp for Monkey at the moment is a film company. I'm just finishing the script off now and working on a, on a film. That will certainly be taking up the next certainly six months. In the horror realm? Will oh, or? very much so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah. okay. The ambition is to just really is to make a really, really scary film. I want it to be one of the scariest horrors ever made. Oh um, wow! Set yourself a high, <laughs> a high bar. Well, I think that shouldn't be. <laughs> he says with all confidence. I think almost every horror ought to have that ambition. 
I haven't ruled out doing more games in the future. And potentially it'll be more along pushing it further down the film route than it even is now. One of the things with Until Dawn and The Quarry was to basically try to make a, an interactive horror movie. And I still think I'd like to do that and to make it more so that the line between them is blurred even more about you know what it is and how it works and how you get that. It's very hard to kind of get any direct backing for it because no one knows quite what the business model is for it. It's fine when it's a console, but when it's Netflix and they made um, well, there's a few out actually at the moment. There's a few interactive things, but they're quite low budget and trying to get something that feels kind of, it's not that it's high budget, but high production value, I think would be a really cool thing. A big part of me still wants to make films and uh, and you can't really do that in a games company in, in the way that I wanted to do it. So that's, so uh, yeah, so um, that's what I've done. Someone send this man a script for Resident Evil. <laughs> <laughs> there have been many attempts to translate Resident Evil to the big screen. Carrying yeah. a suicide right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard work. They're different mediums. Greetings, Crimson Head Elder Team. Hello, Sir Will Biles. This is Silver Serpent. These games had plenty of gifted actors who did an amazing job. How did you orient these actors on, let's say, what's in store for them, what they should do to prepare for the roles they're playing, and what to do during the production of this video game? We know that these games deal with mythological creatures like Wendigos and werewolves. As a director, what did you do to make these creatures reflect a truthful portrayal as much as it can and provide realistic gaming experience for people who are fans of the scary folklore stories? With the actors, it's a really weird thing with the actors. We send them a huge script, like a thousand page script, and they get really quite overwhelmed by it. And we'll often shoot up to like 50 pages a day, which is unheard of in acting. So that's a big deal. The, so they're a bit of a shock on that. When they come into the studio, obviously, they've, they've had a bunch of things. They've all been scanned for months in advance, and we've made models of them with all their costumes on. And when they get onto the studio floor, they're wearing the leotards with the kind of little dots on and then a helmet with the cameras and stuff. So it's really, it's, it's odd. It's a very weird experience, and it's a very big white set. At first, everyone's a bit uncomfortable, but then they start to see their own characters on the screens as they walk around, the things that look like them, but they've got costumes on and they're they're in an environment, you know, like the woods or whatever, and they can see all of that on the screen. So then they start to kind of get a bit more of a feel about, oh, okay, I see how this is kind of going. The younger actors takes them around half an hour and then they're, then they're fine. Ultimately, you know, if they're good actors, they just kind of imagine what's going on. It's a bit like green screen acting nowadays. It's like, you know, that's, there's so much more of it than there used to be. Some of the older actors have a little bit more of a disconnect, I guess, just because there's no camera directly there. I have to explain that the entire studio is a camera and it's yeah. being recorded from every single angle. And so it's all 3D. So... Um, and they kind of get it. And once and once they're up and running, it's all fine. And like I say, uh, at any point they could turn around on the seat on this big screen, see themselves in situ, in character, in, in the environment with all the oh. lighting and stuff, all the lighting, all the effects. They see each other. And the lighting makes a big difference, you know, from a big white stage where it's yeah. all bright into a kind of a dark, um, spooky wood. So there's that. And then with the curses and stuff, we try as much as we can to go with what's common knowledge and that you could kind of look up on Wikipedia. But then we just also slightly alter it to make sure that our story works. So for instance, with the werewolves, one of the things about the werewolves was there's so many different sorts of werewolf. There's the kind of the ones that are just literally look like wolves all the way to kind of the Lon Chaney wolfman thing where it's a, it's a bloke yeah. in, a, in a hairy mask. 
where we want to work on this is somewhere in between. The other thing we wanted to do is that most sort of legends of wolves, werewolves are, someone gets bitten and then they're fine, and then the next full moon they turn. We didn't want to wait a whole month, so um, we just sped that up. We gave it a couple of hours. Well, something like this, as long as you don't go wildly off track, then you're fine, really. You just set up your own law. And within the kind of the realms of any sort of, you know, fictional horror, you can kind of make up your own thing, as long as it's sort of within the realms of what people think. So you could have vampires who can be seen in mirrors or can't be seen in mirrors. You could have... There's so many things you could just pick and choose what you want to do. What you do have to do, though, fairly early on, is establish with the audience or the players... The what those yeah. Rules are. Yeah. yeah. The great thing about it, based on true events, you can continue to research, like Uncharted as well, and I can research on El Dorado, and I kind of still feel like I'm in the Uncharted world. And it's the same yeah. with this, like Wendigo, and I, I can research the Wendigo and Jack Fiddler and stuff, and I still feel like I'm in the Until Dawn verse. So that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did you get into game development? Was this something you always intended as a career, or did you find yourself unexpectedly becoming a game developer? There appear to be very limited opportunities, especially within the UK. I was going to be a doctor. (laughs) That was the plan. (laughs) But um, I just wanted to do art instead. So I I stopped doing doctorate stuff and then uh, went into art and painting and illustration. Uh, But I also was acting and uh, and I loved theatre and I loved all of the, the whole kind of side of entertainment. Because of my background in the, in the theatre and because of um, I was also, you know, the art side of stuff, I started uh, becoming a model maker and then from there became a, uh, an animator, a stop frame animator. I was, uh, I was trained by a chap called Barry Leith. Again, this is going to be out of everyone's age group, maybe, except for you, Paul. Is, no, is thank he, you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let me just put my walking stick down one sec. <laughs> is he did um, the Wombles. And oh, of course. Well, I was born in Wimbledon, so I'm a Womble expert. <laughs> At the time, I was also living in Bristol. Uh, there were two companies in Bristol that uh, that I really loved. One of them was a company called CMTB, which was Charlie Mills and Terry Brain, and they made a TV series called Trapdoor. Oh, my word. I love Trapdoor. Oh, me and my son, we're Trapdoor fanatics. Yeah. Uh, we were actually the other day talking about whether it's possible to get Trapdoor on Blu-ray these days. We it should... is. <laughs> it's also all on YouTube, the whole thing. <laughs> oh. Um, I watch it regularly. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> <laughs> Can we do a podcast just on, on uh, Trapdoor? <laughs> I'm just um, Googling what it is. Oh, <laughs> these young'uns. <laughs> yeah, you, you have to watch the whole thing. It's all on YouTube, so just go binge it. It's yeah. so good. So, that, yeah, CMTB, they made that, and I got a job with them. But also another company in Bristol that did stop frame animation is Ardman Animation. Yeah, so in Nick uh, Park. Yeah, and um, they had a little studio which was in one of these kind of stables up in um, Clifton. I kind of started getting a little bit of work with them as well. And just for people listening who may not know, that's the Wallace and Gromit animated. Yeah, Wallace, well. yes. Uh, yeah. Eventually, uh, I had my own film company um, called Harem Scarum Films in Bath. Harem Scarum, that's from uh, The Quarry. It's, that's where, that's the... Yeah. That's the <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. That was a nod to my past. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Whilst I was doing that, I... S- just about then started to get my own post-production going it was this is again early days of kind of big home computers all post-production was done on these giant silicon graphics machines and and in that i started to learn how to do cg and once i'd learned how to do cg it was like oh actually this is this is a lot easier than than stop frame which is really hard then i got um headhunted up into london so i went up to london and set up a cg department up there and one of the big post-production companies 
And then I was doing a shoot. <laughs> I'll get to the point in a minute. I was doing a shoot in uh, Wardour Street with a little pig, an actual real live little pig. I was talking to the guy as we were trying to let this pig go to sleep. And he was telling me about a friend of his who was a uh, special effects supervisor who had gone to work for EA Games. They said they would really love me to go and talk to them about animation and CG from the film industry point of view. So I said, yes, okay. And I went to EA and then I realized you don't have to be really clever to make video games. <laughs> that actually there's loads of different, you know, obviously if you're a coder, you have to be super clever, but there's all sorts of different roles. And, I, and suddenly I thought, actually, you know what? I can probably do this. So I chatted to them and they said, yeah, why don't you come on board? And I, I came on board as an art director to start off with on Battlefield on a bunch of Battlefield games. So it was it was almost by accident, but it was also at the time when the Xbox 360 had just come out and there was a game called Gears of War that came out and mm -hmm. it was on Xbox only. And it was the first game that I'd seen properly other than things like Myst, where again, it looked like that's what they wanted it to look like. It didn't look like an approximation. And for me, that was like, oh, this is really, really going somewhere. I can see how this could become a real art form as well as, I think it has been an art form for ages, but the limitations, the technical limitations about what you can use and what you can see are becoming fewer and fewer, lighting wise, model wise, animation wise. You end up winning a BAFTA for your work on Until Dawn was it for outstanding storytelling. Would that be correct? We got nominated for four, I think. It was um, Game Innovation, Story, Original Property and Best British Game, I think it was. That you come not from, let's say, like a mathematical or coding background, but more from an artistic background, like you say, with your acting and your, and your designing. So I'm sure there's no coincidence between that and the fact that work that you're involved with then gets recognised as having su you know, such immersive and, and such affecting storytelling. Thank you. I think I've had a very uh, lucky career in as much as I've got a lot of knowledge in very specific areas that really, really kind of are useful for this. Cinematography as well, just for, and photography, understanding not just about how to um, uh, just to look at a picture, but to understand in a really quite a complex way how light works on film, as well as then trying to um, re-manipulate that in a CG environment and then re-manipulate that in a CG environment that's runtime. I'm Steve Burnside, smashing through the window to save Claire Redfield, but this time around, <laughs> I'm, I'm saving you, Will. I'm saving you from the Until Dawn Illuminati. <laughs> Your generosity has meant that you've been with us on two sittings over five hours. I'm just nailing the door shut. He's not going anywhere. <laughs> right. um, Will, you better quickly run, but very, very quickly. Uh, for myself, George Trevor, and the whole of the Crimson Head crew, and of course, the whole survival horror community that I'm sure will be listening and enjoying this huge podcast that you've so generously gifted to us. Will Bar thank you very very much for joining us oh you're really welcome thank you that was great fun it was really really fantastic to meet you and i feel like i could probably talk to you forever um yes and thank you for some some great games they uh they were a test for me as a horror fan i was like oh you've got uh going to finally test the rules that scream and all that introduced yes. to us uh i was like oh i'm finally going to get my chance although i found until dawn kind of flew in the face of the rules a little bit and everyone well, died so we for had me. to a little bit yeah because because <laughs> the thing is if you knew the rules absolutely then it was like oh yeah. okay well you're just gonna you're just gonna breeze your way through this I found the quarry adhered to them more. I kept everyone alive in the quarry, but then until yes. dawn, everyone died. <laughs> yes, and, and until dawn did have a, the twitchy weird thing at the end that we didn't really want. Oh, I was so mad. Yeah, but to be honest, even that didn't always work. So um, it was a, it was a very very frustrating thing. The meaning behind it was great, and actually, I think that once the patches had gone out, it completely was fine. But it was a very yeah. frustrating bit uh, to get. Fantastic that games, though. 
I'm enjoying so much this interview and I'm honored to be here. Oh, so, welcome. Mr. Biles, thanks for being here and uh, take this interview and uh, really thanks for these amazing games. I love them. I am keeping to play them. I, I got the platinum. I don't nice. care <laughs> because I really adore them. I also wanted really to thank you because it's quite some time you took for us. So I'm really grateful and I'm super happy to have been able to talk to you. Zooks was the first person to come to mind when I thought of having someone on. There's also a bunch of other guys in the Digital Preservation Server Group. You got Toasty Buns, John, SMG, and Digital Preservation himself, who've all been like a massive part of the Until Dawn community and they continually bringing content to the fans. So shout out to those guys as well. One of my favorite interviews I've ever done. Until Dawn is one of my favorite video games. So I'll never forget the time you've given for us and these answers. And yeah, this is amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, super welcome. That was great. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Thanks, Will. Bye.